What's going on, Battleship Pretension listeners? My name is Gus. I am a longtime listener myself and a web developer based in DC. And I'm sponsoring this episode so I can tell you about a little app with a giant heart called Fantasy Oscars. You can find it at fantasyoscars.co. It's a little bit of a fun side project I've been working on year by year. Totally free, lets you create a ballot to predict winners. And then you can also create leagues so that you can score your ballot against your friends. I actually put together a special league for Battleship Retention listeners, which you can join by going to fantasyoscars.co slash BP. All around, it's just meant to be an extra bit of fun around the show. You can use it to score the ballot contest at your Oscar party. If you're going to be watching with family, maybe in different states, I find it provides a little extra layer of connection. Um, same thing if you're just having a chill night in by yourself during the show. So I hope to see you at fantasyoscars.co. Enjoy the show. Welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am Scott Nye. I am David Bax. Tyler Smith is still not here. You can find out what's going on with Tyler Smith if you want to uh, by visiting caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. And you can also go to battleshipretention.com and find um, a post about his GoFundMe uh, pinned to the top of the homepage there at battleshipretention.com. So that's what's what's going on uh, with Tyler um i real quick want to tell the listeners what's going on with me um yeah enough of tyler we've been talking about him (laughs) for half a year yeah but uh this kind of has to do with tyler in a way too so i um i've had the same cat since she was a, a kitten um in 2004 in 2004 my um my sister was at college in in uh, southeast Missouri, and uh, a friend of hers had a cat that had a litter, and and uh, she and my mom and I all wanted one. So she, once the cats kittens were old enough to be separated from their mom, she drove up to St. Louis with three cats. And next time I came down from Chicago, which was only a week or so later, um, I picked one up and 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 took her back. So my sister, my mom, and I all had cats um, from who were who were siblings. Um, my cat, whom I have had since May of 2004, uh, outlived uh, both of her her siblings, both of her sisters. Um, but today, this this afternoon, uh, we had to make the decision to to put her to sleep. Um, I won't go into all of those details, but it's something we um, kind of half knew um, was going to have to happen. Um, I think for some reason, I don't know why this seemed important to me, but I was kind of hoping she'd make it to her 19th birthday, which she didn't by just shy of two months. Mm. Um, but uh, um, yeah, eight, nearly 19 years is um, a good run Impressive. for a cat. Uh, but it's um, it also means it's, it's very sad to lose um, a, a pet. Uh, especially when you've had for, for so long. Um, and there's also just the fact that I got her right after I graduated college 
you know, I've been different cities, different jobs, different girlfriends, just the one wife so far. But um, I've had a lot of change in my life. But the one constant thing that has been with me since pretty much since I graduated college and entered the sort of like the real adult wor- world is uh, Richelieu, my my cat. Her name her name was Richelieu. Um, I think I knew I was going to name her Richelieu before I knew if she was a boy or girl. I know Richelieu, the character and the actual person that you most associate with the name Richelieu was a man, but uh, I don't know. It was always a fitting, uh, a fitting name. Um, It's fun to say, uh, not so much fun to, for people to spell. Like if anytime she didn't, she was very healthy her entire life up until about a year ago. Um, But on the rare occasion, she did have to go to the vet, the vets and vet techs we're always trying to read her name from the like form and would never get it <laughs> yeah. right. So it's fun to say, not so easy to pronounce if you're not well-versed in, uh, I guess, uh, late middle age French history or three Musketeers movies and novels. And really uh, then the jokes on them. I mean, they, they, you know, they're lost. Yeah. I used to try, I think I used to try and say like, Oh, Cardinal Richelieu was the spiritual advisor to Louis the 13th, whatever. Uh, at, at, at a certain point I just said, started saying she's named after the bad guy from the three Musketeers. Sure. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, she wasn't sick very often. She's been with me the whole time. I can't remember where else I was, was, was going with, with all of that. But, um, uh, yeah, today's been a very weird day because this wasn't like, again, not something I thought was going to happen today. Not something I woke up thinking was going to happen. Um, I knew I had to take her to the vet on my lunch break and uh, that, you know, things were uncovered and, and decisions were, were made. And my wife uh, came to the because it wasn't we were planning. Right? My wife also took a break from her work and came to the vet so that we could be with her. Um as as she passed so uh it's a very uh rough thing so i'm in a weird headspace uh oh i, I remember what i was saying was that when i first got rich and brought her to chicago she lived with me and tyler and uh cole pasek the composer of our chilling theme music <laughs> um you know our early uh so yeah she she lived with me our early uh early podcasts were recorded at my apartment on Canyon Avenue, not the fancy one. Um, uh, <laughs> there's a Canyon in Beverly Hills. Oh, that's I thought you were saying- with uh, yeah. Tilda. I lived on I thought- Canyon Avenue, which I go ahead. I thought you were saying not the fancy apartment you lived in. I was like, when did you live in a fancy apartment? No, no. Um, the can- I lived in the Canyon Avenue in like near Franklin village, which actually, I think North of Franklin actually does get kind of fancy. There's like oh, private yeah. homes and stuff like yeah. that. But I lived closer to Hollywood Boulevard, just a, you know, regular apartment. Uh, and that's where we recorded our early episodes. And, and Richelieu was there usually. Uh, I think there is at some point on the early episode of the podcast, you can hear if you sign up for the Patreon uh, where you get the early 40 episodes um, that we've taken off because they're so embarrassing. But I think <laughs> there is a part where you can hear Richley when her former uh, brother, uh, Doss, um, Dostoevsky, uh, I didn't name Dostoevsky, by the way, um, <laughs> fighting because they would like, they would fight all the time uh, out of nowhere and then just retreat to their corners. And then she moved, you know, to, or, or she, once we got, 
she was living with me and Natalie and we've had a couple of dogs and she was fine with both the dogs. You know, she was always mostly just ignored them. Um, though it's especially sad these last couple nights because it's been quite cold at night. Mm. Um, she actually has been, had been, I have, I have, I've been referring to her in the present tense all day. Um, oh, sure. I, I, but she had been uh, cuddling up with the dog at night uh, the last few nights because it's been so cold. So um, our dog, Darla, um, is probably confused and maybe a little sad, too. I'm not sure oh, what kind yeah. of emotions dogs dogs have. But, uh, yeah, it's um, it's a strange time. But I still want to do the podcast because... Um, She's a, not only because she's a part of the of this podcast's history and lore, but um, because it just helps to do it. Sure. Uh, which, uh, Scott, you're very unlucky, it seems, because you were also filling in for Tyler the first episode I recorded after my dog Jack died. Um, I don't, I didn't, I mean, I remembered your dog Jack died. I don't remember what that episode was. It, I, I don't remember what the topic of the episode was, but yeah. you were filling in for Tyler. And Jackie Cation was the guest, um, the comedian Jackie Cation. I, it's so weird. I don't remember doing a podcast with Jackie Cation ever. Uh, you I, did because really here's another thing I remember. It. This is another thing that won't be of interest to the listeners. Maybe this will jog your memory. Um, even though Tyler was out of town, I was still doing the podcast at his house, but I foolishly didn't tell you that. So you showed up at my house, and Natalie had to tell you, like, "Oh no, he's at Tyler." Remember that part? So. Jackie and I sort of awkwardly hung out while I talked about my dog who had just died like two days before um, until you, until you got there. Yeah. I'll take your word, <laughs> but uh, sorry for the, for the bad luck um, on that. Okay. Oh, I just like uh, to think I'm that good at comforting you, David. Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, let me tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com. Absolutely. Uh, uh, they make uh, professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. I use them each and every day of my life. Today, I was using them to listen to uh, the six songs so far that have been released from the upcoming M83 album. Um, they're really good. Uh, I don't. I, I don't know what else to say about uh, M83. Has always been kind of. Um, it's always been pretty consistent for for me. I've never been an enormous fan, but this stuff, I think, if you like M eighty three, you'll you'll like it. I I was enjoying it quite a bit. This was this morning uh, before <laughs> um, uh, everything uh, went nuts. Um, but they it sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds. They're available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com. Uh, but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. Uh, please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Scott. Hello. Let's get into it, shall we? Absolutely. This is the big game. This is it. 
this so is we've the all been working towards been working towards all year yeah um i mean it's kind of it kind of is like the episode that i most look forward to and 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 build up to yeah. you know um i have my, my plan tonight my plan uh sorry i i, I meant to like just put the richlu thing in the beginning and not bring it up but it's going to keep coming up of course uh our plan tomorrow night is to go out to dinner in Richlou's honor. And I told Natalie's completely vegetarian, but uh, I'm going to order fish in, in Richlou's honor. Just order what a cat would order. I mean, it's also a healthy <laughs> meal, you know, it's yeah, can, yeah. Uh, heart healthy. Yeah, there you go. Um, but tonight, my plan that I'm looking forward to weirdly is to not watch a movie. I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch some, I plan, I plan to watch some old Dick Van Dyke show episodes. That's my plan because I have been cramming movies, uh, since, I don't know, since Tiff, it feels like, I don't know. It just feels like, uh, it's been balls. Yeah. yeah. Fall in the winter is always a blur. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also glad I crammed movies because one of the movies I watched the past couple nights is actually going to come up today. Mm. Um, but, uh, here's how we do this for new time for new listeners. Uh, uh, if you if you don't if you are listeners who have forgotten because why would you commit this to memory uh buckle in because this is going to be a long one maybe don't buckle in that could be uncomfortable relax <laughs> take a load of put your feet up this is going to be a long one um because we're not just doing our top 10 films of 2022 uh which we always do the week before the oscars uh we are going to start with our worst film of 20, our, our least favorite, I guess, maybe yeah. uh, film of 2022. Then we're going to each pick a film that we think is uh, overrated. Then we're going to pick a, then, then we're done with the negativity. After that, we each pick a film we think is underrated. Then we each get five honorable mentions. We're not doing back and forth whole, like this is like capsule review five, five in a row. Um, although I will say, uh, cause I'm going to have you go first. If you bring up in your honorable mention something that's going to be either in my honorable mentions mm-hmm. or in my top ten, I'll stop you and we'll just talk about it. For in the interest of time, we, we only want to talk about each movie once. Is the idea basically? Yeah. Uh, and then we'll trade off counting down our top ten. So um, let's. I already said let's get into it, shall we? But you know what? It's a big episode. Let me say it twice. Let's get or third third time. Let's get into it, shall <laughs> we, uh, Scott? What do you think is the worst film of 2022? Um, I always have a tough time with this because um, these days the whole industry as a whole feels very precarious. And, you know, especially the theatrical experience. And we typically discuss theatrically released films, whether that's like our intention to be elitist about it or not. The fact is that those are the highest profile films. And so the... Profile of movies is diminishing. Um, with that being said, I still think Bullet Train is pretty bad. Um, and I had a rough go of it watching it. And it was just, it just felt like a big nothing. Like it was just kind of cynical in ways I wasn't expecting. And I know there's been so many movies that have like ripped off the Tarantino formula and kind of that ethos. This was the first time it felt like it was totally digested at a studio level and they felt like they could just replicate like that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. And it didn't come from like, I mean, I, I'm sure what's his name, director David. Oh, God, can't be pronounced Leech, can it? Um, Leech? Leech? It's probably uh, Leech. Probably not Leech. Um, I'm sure it was. Well, you know the that... saying that it, it, when two vowels go walking, the first one does the talking. I think with German is generally the second. 
it's a generally opposite. <laughs> do you not know that saying? I do not. Oh, okay. Um, well, I don't, I don't think they use it anymore because there are so many exceptions to it. Yeah. Um, uh, they, they couldn't make it pithy like uh, I before you except after C or when it makes A as in neighbor or way. Um, so I, anyway, I'm, I think it's Leitch. Well, I, I don't even know why I brought him up because I was going to say maybe it was a passion project for him and he had enough cachet to make it go. But apparently it was originally developed by Antoine Fuqua. Um, so this was just like some property that was floating around the studios. And yeah, I mean, it's got a great cast, none of whom are really given any real moments to shine. It doesn't really have any memorable action beats. And it does like several things that I just think are weird where like all of a sudden people just like, it starts with a full train because it takes place on a train and it's like this showdown between various figures vying for a MacGuffin of some kind. Um, but then like, as the fighting goes on, people just start disappearing at some point <laughs> and you're like, yeah, they have like this voiceover announcement. That's like, we emptied out the train and now it's just the fighters or whatever. And like that one gets, but like no one's driving the train. There's no employees walking around anymore. It just, uh, it starts to take place in a void of some kind. So it's like, even the premise, it can't follow through on, um, you know, in a cynical way. It's just, it's just uh rough, rough sledding. Um, yeah, I saw it with a group of friends and we all walked out very disappointed. And it's one of those times when, you know, you, you go to the movies with friends and you want to like have a night of it. And like everyone's going to join themselves having a good time. And usually there's like maybe one person's like, I didn't think it was all that. But when like everybody's not into the movie, it's just like, I guess we just go home now. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a bummer. Yeah. I also, it's definitely in my top or my bottom like five uh, worst movies of, of the year. Um, uh, I also, yeah, left in a uh, kind of sad state. Saw it with, with Natalie. I'm sure she uh, is happy she uh, took time out of her busy day to, <laughs> to see Pull and Chain with me. Um, but she's, you know, you can always uh, lure Natalie to the theater with the promise of free popcorn. Um, sure. Uh, all right. Worst movie for me. I don't know if I would say this is low hanging fruit. This actually, this gets into something we talked to Tyler and I talked about a lot last year inspired by the fact that you picked malignant as your most overrated movie. Sure. And that led us to talking about a lot of things about when we're saying these things, who is, are we saying it for our audience, for the people? Yeah. So this feels like low hanging fruit to me, but it's also like an Oscar contender. Um, but Darren Aronofsky's the whale is uh, my least favorite movie of 2022. The, the opening scene of the whale would be a contender for worst scene in a movie in 2022. If it weren't for the fact that the movie keeps getting worse. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, I've talked about like, or I don't know if I talked about the podcast, but I know I've tweeted about like, there's a feeling like a, a click and a, a feeling of elation you get when you realize the movie that you're watching is really good. Yeah. There's also the opposite thing. Totally. I'm not sure I've been, I, I can't remember the last time I was so sure so quickly that mm. this movie sucked. Then when Brendan Fraser hands the, the, uh, I don't know what you call the, uh, missionary or whatever that, that, uh, essay to read to him while he thinks he's dying. Right. I, I was so immediately like, Oh my God, <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? There's an hour and 40 minutes of this. Uh, and yeah, I, I, so the movie is bad, very bad. And, uh, 
I think insulting and uh, manipulative and, and and cynical and pandering just on a drama level in a true like sort of what people mean when they say Oscar bait. It has right. all of all of of that like um, what Jonathan Rosemont would call lightweight uplift. Um, hmm. I guess that becomes an ironic term when you talk about the whale, but uh, um, especially if you've seen the movie, you know how it ends. But anyway, um, uh, in addition to that, I also think that the complaints about it being fat phobic or whatever, all are very much warranted. Like it, the movie treats, I've already, already, already forgotten the character's name. Uh, I should know. What it. Indeed. Yeah, I have but, the letter boxed up because I was marveling at his miraculous three point seven rating. Um, but letterbox doesn't list character names. Charlie. So uh, it treats Charlie as if he is repulsive. Yes. All, but also, it is cartoonish, literally cartoonish, in the way that it depicts how he gets to be the way he is. You know, like I, I think that the the multiple scenes and at one point a full on montage of him just like slapping foods together and cramming them them down their mouth down his mouth, uh, is I you know I don't I don't want to get off my high horse about a group of people that I don't think I'm a member of. I mean I know I'm like my BMI is maybe a little higher than it should be, but I don't think I'm uh, a member of of the group. But it does. I did feel like it was uh, insulting um, and and a little degrading um, in in the way that it was telling the audience to connect weight with with sadness and with with uh, pain and with grossness. You know, it shows him as 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 gross. You know, even though like I'm glad that it took the time to show that he is like a person who washes himself and everything <laughs> but also it shows him with huge sweat stains on his back just from the act of you know getting himself down the hall uh yeah so i i found the movie insulting to me i kept i think that's the third time i've used that word but that's how i felt uh on on multiple levels um and uh i hightailed it out of there when the movie was over <laughs> because i didn't want didn't the want same to linger situation. for any longer than you had to because I remember the situation, not that I hated this movie as much, but I hated, I hated the Danish girl. And I remember right. being stuck at, the, cause it was like a, a, for an awards consideration type screening. And I was stuck at the elevator with a bunch of people who were like sniffling and wiping their eyes and oh, stuff. Sure. And I'm just like, Oh, I feel, I feel like, I feel like a monster now. I feel like Charlie feels <laughs> uh, in, in the whale. So I specifically got out of there quickly. So I didn't have to feel like uh, a negative asshole on the people who probably uh, liked it, but I didn't get out there out of there fast enough to not hear someone turn to her friend and say, <laughs> well, that's clearly the film of the year. You can't escape uh, them. Yeah. All right. So we're halfway through our negativity. Uh, what's next for you? Um, what's your what's your most overrated movie of the year well interestingly both my overrated and underrated might appear on your top 10 so you tell me um well but, if, it, if your overrated appears on my top 10 i want to hear it now 
Okay. Well, no, I'll obviously tell you the title, but I didn't know if you would want to maybe want to put a pin in it. So that's why I'm. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea, actually. Okay. What's the title? Um. Well, it's a little preamble. So I always do the overrated and underrated. Is like I agree with the general, or I see the point of the general consensus, even if I don't quite agree with it. I just think the consensus is maybe uh, uh, misvaluing what the films are doing. So I agree in the case of my overrated film, which is Todd Field's Tar. Um, no, that's not going to come up later, but I, I definitely I, liked it. But yeah. Not yeah, I remember to... you being a little more fond of it than I was. Um, so yeah, I went with Tar because I do think it's an important film and notable film and is worth talking about and dissecting. Um, I just don't think there's as much there as... Um, a lot of other people seem to find in it. And I think the general structure of it is, I mean, I hate to use the word problematic because people assume it's going to be a moral thing, but it's mostly like an aesthetic thing. Um, the way we're both kind of like intimately involved with her and seeing, hearing like these mysterious sounds that she hears and um, seeing like portions of her dreams. But we also are just kept in the dark about various parts of her backstory that aren't that exciting to find out about um and which only kind of served to tease along what is for most of the film not a lot of plot and not a lot of story um i think the whole conception of the single take scene where she's at the juilliard i think teaching the class and like railing about um how we can't cancel bach or whatever um is really overdetermined um both initially and especially by the time it comes back around to being like, oh, but they chopped up the scene for a funny TikTok video. Gotcha. And then that fills it back like, oh, well, we saw the scene play out completely. There's a lot of aesthetic decisions in it that just feel like really overwrought and um, really kind of one to one in how it's laid out. Um, and I'm not I'm just not the. I don't think I'm the biggest Kate Blanchett fan anymore. I find her decisions either at this point very predictable or pointlessly adventurous um i remember watching <laughs> um oh where'd you go bernadette which was just like i felt like that was her like late brando moment well not even late brando because brando didn't take long getting here where like brando reached a certain point by like the late 60s where he seemed to be overwhelmed by all the choices you could make while acting and seemed to want to make all of them all the time. Um, and I just feel like Kate Blanchett in her worst moments these days has kind of reached that point. And here I just, I don't feel like she has a strong aesthetic grip around the film, the way the film might benefit from. Um, I mean, the person or the two people I would most like to see in this kind of role would be like an Isabel Huppert or Tilda Swinton, who could really, I think, do something interesting and unusual and unexpected with it. Uh, here, it just feels like Kate Blanchett is delivering a lot of familiar territory and occasionally flailing stuff. Um, I do really like Noemi Morlant in it. Um, and she was on at least one of my supporting actress ballots. And there's something else in the movie I kind of dug. Um, oh, I really like the opening and just how it opens with the someone filming her sleeping on a plane and texting about her. Uh, I like the Adam Gopnik scene with her being interviewed um, mainly for how we see it through Naomi Merlin's eyes. Um, I hated every critic needing to point out that they know who Adam Gopnik is. Um, and <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I, I just I don't think it's a particularly notable film, but I do think it's an important one if that dissection makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. No. Um. Yeah. I obviously liked it more than than you did. You've made that point about Kate Blanchett, I think, on the podcast before. I'm sure. Yeah. Um. But uh, yeah. I I found coming from someone who liked in the bedroom and didn't like little children. I found the amount of humor, which we actually just talked about on this podcast a week or two weeks ago. I can't remember which one it was uh, to be very refreshing. I really enjoyed uh, how the movie moved um, and uh, how humorous it was. Uh, And I have a, I have a soft spot for, movies or or screenwriters or whatever who write the kind of movies where people the characters are talking constantly but the thing that they're saying isn't actually what you're supposed to glean from do you know what i'm saying like sure yeah it's, it's all in the like, subtext yeah yeah i i, I liked that because you know often when screenwriters are uh overly wordy it's because they're telling you too much um I like that the screenplay is absolutely crammed with dialogue, but you still have to be paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, there, I think there's some parts where it's a little heavy handed, but I, I generally see what you mean. And I do. Well, think yeah, I mean, you funny. make a good point with the, like that scene being a, a one or whatever, and then being chopped up later, which is not something I had thought of. Uh, but that is interesting. All right. Um, my overrated, I'm, I'm picking one just to avoid the obvious pick because I don't want to be a part of the pile on. What's the um, obvious? Well, we got to know what the obvious pick is. You can't just. Uh... I don't know. It, the neither you or I liked the movie that very well, very well may win Best Picture. Um, yeah. So that's that's to me that's the obvious pick. So I'm gonna go with something a little bit under the radar, but that I really hate it um and that got good reviews uh but not as many reviews or as much attention i'm talking about ali abbasi's holy spider uh oh this is one that i meant to see all year but after you yeah told me you weren't that hot on it i, I was like eh can wait and then never happened uh yeah so it's um based on a true story of a i guess essentially a serial killer in iran who was uh, murdering prostitutes. But when he was caught and made clear that he was essentially a religious nut and was doing it because he thought these people were sinners or whatever, a certain very vocal segment of the Iranian population started to rally around him. Um, uh, this is obviously not the first movie that's been made uh, of this. There was another um, one that's probably not as uh, sensationalistic as this one. Uh and, and that isn't widely available, but I only know that because I stayed for the Q and a <laughs> here's uh, I only stay. I generally don't like to stay for Q and A's. I think you, you know, uh, Scott, but I, I will stay for a Q and a, if there's a reception afterwards, <laughs> it seems like the polite thing to do. Gotta be something to... in it for David. <laughs> yeah. So there was a reception afterwards. There was a Q and a, um, and we'll get back to that, uh, later, but that's just where the director mentioned that there had been another film in Iran or, or somewhere that was, based on the same story but uh not very widely seen anyway um and the but the choices that the screen first the screenplay makes and then that ali abbasi makes seem so i said i already said sensationalistic they seem so disrespectful 
to the women, but in the guise of this being a feminist movie, you know, uh, but, um, you know, the, the opening sequence, we see a woman like, Oh, it's just so exploitative. We see her like leave her kid behind, then go to work on the street, you know, as a sex worker. Um, we see her give a blow job. I'm assuming it's a prosthetic, you know, but, uh, like just a, a close-up of her giving a blow job. And then her murder is so drawn out like a horror movie mm. that it feels like, you know, there's, when you're watching a slasher movie, there's a certain, like dark movies, slightly shameful thrill. Right. Of course. Seeing the kill, the, the, the murders from the point of view of Jason or Michael Myers, Myers or whatever. But when it's a real person who did this awful thing, and these are real based on real women who died, the amount of time the movie spends with the serial killer, seeing things from his point of view, seeing things through his eyes seems like such a bad <laughs> idea if you're gonna yeah. make this 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 feminist film um there's also like that's not the only murder that is disturbing there are multiple murders that are like that play out in these lengthy disturbing sequences um it's a it this might be the first time since i saw oh man i got i, I for obvious reasons, my head is not like fully in the right place today. Um, so I'm draw- drawing a blank on the name of the both the director and the movie. Uh, okay, when I saw Laszlo Nemesis Sunset, yeah, it, I hated it so much that it made me like Son of Saul less. <laughs> which I thought, I, you know, Son of Saul wasn't like anywhere near like a top yeah, yeah. or anything for me, but like I had uh, appreciated it. Um, and I, I kind of feel the same way about Border, uh, Ali Abbasi's last movie. Um, uh, that like I, I didn't like it at okay. the time, so I'm yeah, you're yeah it. you're uh, in the clear. <laughs> but now I think I might like it less because yeah. I like I've seen more of him and I realize what his impulses are. Uh, but anyway, back to the Q and A before we move on. <laughs> these Q and As are you know these are for your consideration screenings. These Q and As are supposed to like keep the movie in people's minds, but sometimes they can backfire. They sure can. And see, that's what I live for. Uh, yeah, because at the time they filmed this, the uh, the the revolution and and the uprisings of protests among women in, in Iran uh, after the uh, murder of a woman for not wearing her uh, not covering her hair by the morality police um, hadn't happened when they filmed it. Mm. And so the lead actress, who was playing an invented character, by the way, which I don't, I don't know if I have a problem with that or not. I don't think I do. Um, but anyway, the lead actress was there and she was talking about this coming to mean something. Right. And then the director interrupts her. So this guy's going to interrupt an Iranian woman talking about <laughs> the Iranian women's uh, movement. And he interrupts her. And all he says is something like these Iranian women, man, they're really impressive or something. I can't remember exactly <laughs> what it was, but he interrupted her to say, to add nothing to the conversation. And it like kind of solidified in my mind, like, Oh, this is the kind of like performative fem- feminist man right. that he, that he is. Um, uh, yeah. Hey, it was a great reception after. What was the food? Uh, it was, it, it was um, just, uh, they had two big, 
like plates of like cheese and bread and crackers and fruit and some meats like basically like two they had two massive charcuterie boards and nice. then uh, uh free free wine and and beer i think but i was drinking wine um yeah and a friend of the show katie walsh was there chatted yeah, with katie right walsh a little bit it was a, it was a good time what she thought right. um i didn't ask her <laughs> because i didn't want to know well fair enough <laughs> It was also because Katie and I had like just talked about Armageddon time, which she liked and I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so I was didn't like, want to keep further into the divide. Yeah. I don't want to keep being the, <laughs> the negative type. All right, let's we're done with the negative stuff. Let's move on to the positive stuff. What is, what do you think is the most underrated movie of the year? Yeah. So here's where I have a hard time properly gauging my barometer mostly because I was like looking through Armand White's annual better than list and like agreeing with the vast majority of the ones where I'd seen both movies. I think there was like one comparison where I'd seen both movies and disagreed with it. Uh, For the most part, I was like right on point. So um, (laughs) nevertheless, uh, for my underrated, I'm going to go with a film that is just barely missing my top 10, but this is a good chance to talk about it and which, also might be on your top 10. Uh, Damon Shizzle's Babylon. Oh, yeah, that'll come up later. Yeah. Right. Okay, so then we'll go on to my underrated, a movie that has something including a, a major actress in common with it, and a movie I just watched two nights ago. David O. Russell's Amsterdam is my most underrated movie of the year. Interesting pick. Uh, well, it was, a, you know, I, I had a different one pick that was kind of like Holy Spider. It was something a little more under the radar. But when I finished watching Amsterdam, which I don't remember like seeing a lot of discourse about, when I happened to check the Rotten Tomatoes score and saw that it was like 32%, and I was like, I mean, obviously it's not you know anywhere near my top 15, but it's still like, how do so few people like this movie that is mostly just fun for me? Like I laughed constantly throughout the movie. Um, it's incredibly silly, but also, um, it, it, I think the movie knows it's silly, but none of the characters know that they're silly. Right. Um, which is a lot of fun for me. It has that sort of Leslie Nielsen type of vibe, uh, to it sometimes. Uh, also I, by avoiding the discourse, like I knew four people who were in this cast. I knew, oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, I knew that it was. Christian Bale, John David Washington, Margot Robbie, and then I knew that Taylor Swift had a cameo. Right. Um, uh, so the fun of just like, and you can tell in the framing that David Russell is making it fun to have yeah. like, uh, like first reveal, like, oh my gosh, there's Mike Mike Myers, and then intentionally have Michael Shannon like lean into the frame <laughs> as he moves, like, oh, and Michael Shannon, yeah. like, uh, and then like. I did tell a joy enters the door and then Rami Malek sitting there <laughs> and um, uh, yeah. Uh, Ed Begley Jr. There's just so many people I, I didn't know. Uh, and yeah, the movie has its problems. I think it kind of um, uh, in whatever morality tale it's trying to tell, it kind of uh, uh, steers into almost lecturing at near the end. Yeah. I think, I think that's kind of been, that, that was kind of my big that yeah. is kind of how it vastly overcorrects or for whatever it's trying to do at the end. Um, I was on board with it through like the first two thirds easily, maybe even three quarters. Uh, yeah, but it's, 
Um, there's also I watched it at home, but I you know I have a I have a nice TV and a nice sound system. Uh, well, look at the you. the sound design and specifically the recording of the actors' voices um, is uh, a really strong part of the movie. There's there are scenes where um, there are multiple scenes between Christian Bale and Zoe Saldana. Again, I didn't know she was in the movie. Um, and those <laughs> this scenes... what you miss out on by by uh, not being a freaking movie goer in the regular theater space is that you didn't see this trailer nine hundred times and get right, pummeled yeah. with every star. <laughs> no, yeah, I've never seen the trailer to this day. Um, so there are scenes with Christian Bale and Zoe Saldana have seen scenes together, and both of those main. I think there's just two major scenes they have together, and both of them are like whispery scenes okay. uh, but they're recorded and mixed so well that having fun actors like that who make choices like you were saying with Kate, Kate Blanchett being able to hear the choices they're, ma- they're, they're making uh, not just see it but hear it in, in their enunciation and pronunciation uh became just another part of like the fun just as much as the costumes are a lot of fun hearing the way people talk i mean it wasn't nuts about margot robbie you know who's supposed to be like an aristocrat but apparently just only knows how to do like a kind of like lower class jersey accent i know that's like trying to wonder if maybe she's not as exciting as we thought (laughs) (laughs) i just think she does she only knows the one american accent maybe that's fine but um but yeah, Christian Bale is uh who's a master at various accents, um is is great as a I guess he's supposed to be I guess he's supposed to be like a early twentieth century like uh Brooklyn Jew, right? Or he's half Jewish. That's a that's a big uh uh sticking point, I guess, in the movie. Yeah, I saw this back uh, in August, so I don't have as clear a memory of it. Uh yeah, and John David Washington is always fun. The movie's just it's too fun to be disliked and I, I don't really understand how someone how so many people dislike it strongly enough to but uh, or as strongly as they do um, i had fun i may even watch it again someday yeah no i think that's fair i mean i haven't parsed the reviews completely but it could be also just the rotten tomatoes thing of like it they disliked it enough to steer it in the rotten rating but they don't like hate it hate it i do know a lot yeah. of people did like hate it hate it and like That's part true. of that of course you have to chalk up to just david russell's reputation these days um both yeah, artistically and morally um not not a strong enough rep- reputation to keep everyone from working with him apparently <laughs> well that's hollywood baby you know yeah yeah cast out the sinners uh, we'll have no one left that yeah, one, you know, coming I think- soon I think sometimes I forget to do that with Rotten Tomato scores when they're low. I know, I know when they're high, like yeah. when, when a Marvel movie gets a 96%, it just means like most 96% of the critics thought it was at least okay. That's all it means. Um, and so super high ratings like that tend to go to less challenging movies. Right. I know that I should probably apply it the other way too, that maybe there isn't hatred for Amsterdam, but you said there is some, all right, let's move on. All right, I want you to run through your five honorable mentions, but give me enough space to stop you if you say something uh, that is going to come up later. All right, uh, sticking with five, I accidentally put eight here, so I'll pick out the five. Um, mainly of stuff we haven't talked about in the last couple of weeks. Um, 
Andrew Arnold's cow still a big old fan of that. Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely, I mean, I barely watch any documentaries. This is the best documentary I saw last year. It's not saying much, but I really loved it and was. And also, I happen to know you didn't see it last year. You saw it in 2020. Uh, yeah, go on. Because I was there. Um, that came out last year. Um, and I was just impressed with how much of her perspective she got into uh, not only a documentary at all, but a documentary about a cow. Um, Emily the Criminal, I think, is like. Yeah really exciting cool fun movie that like i feel like has kind of caught on with like people outside of film groups it's weirdly like i've been doing a lot of traveling this year and i see watch on planes constantly like it's just a movie people mm-hmm. seem to be going to and it's really impressed me with its um kind of uh moody noirish moral perspective on uh, the world and on emily herself it's a kind of role that could easily cast like pure victim kind of stature but built into like almost kind of walter white character um banshees of inish cheering um plenty has been said i know you're not as big a fan of it um i yeah that's another overrated competitor but i like it for sure yeah i i was i was very deeply moved by it and it's definitely close to making my top 10 um i'm sure we'll be talking about after sun on your top 10 but it uh no oh really okay i thought you were more into it than i was um it might be but uh <laughs> well then it still make uh this cut for a, an honorable mention um it was in my it was genuinely in my top 10 a couple, until a couple of days ago um but we talked about it on the movie journal you can hear more about it there it's very moving surprisingly it kind of caught me off guard with how moving it was yeah um, we also talked about it a lot on the the best needle drops episode with yeah Ingram. we sure yeah. did um and then the last one I want to give a shout out to is uh, A Night of Knowing Nothing, another one I talked about on Movie Journal recently. It's kind of like a half documentary, half fiction. Um, and when Scott says film, he talked about something on a Movie Journal, that's on the Patreon. That's true. You got to pay for that pa- shit. Patreon.com slash Battleship Pretension. Um, and which was just like a total breath of fresh air aesthetically and emotionally in terms of the kind of thing it's tackling. Uh even just from half being um, feeling I was shot on a film, even though it was all done digitally, it was really, really cool technical marvel and kind of a interesting aesthetic gambit. Oh, and I, I already didn't find movies, but I got to give a shout out to the, I almost tried to give myself an out and tried to tell myself I could put Olivia Sayas' Irma Vep in my top 10, <laughs> but I, I, I stuck with my guns. I stuck to my morals. I didn't put it there, but it was like one of the best things in any motion picture field I saw over the past year. All right. Uh, my top five. Um, I'm counting down, so I'm going to start at number 15. Uh, Noah Baumbach's White Noise. Um, just really fun to see. Oh, the director. we'll be talking about that. Sorry. I, oh, I, okay. I spaced out. You caught me off guard, but we'll be talking about that shortly. Okay. Then uh, move on to my, I guess, uh, number 14. Um, and the, I guess, third best documentary I saw this year, since it'll be two in my top sure. 10, if you can believe it. Um, it's called All That Breathes. It's directed by uh, Sean Xen. Uh, and it's the it's a documentary about two brothers who uh, live in Delhi and have essentially a nonprofit. They like make computer parts or something on the side it's not computer no what do they do they make something on the side i can't remember what it is <laughs> vending machines whatever um 
or as the main thing on the side, they run a sort of uh, rehab for injured kites, not the toys, the kind of bird kite. Uh, and so uh, there is, to a certain extent, this is a cute animal documentary, which I have a love hate relationship with cute animal documentaries, <laughs> but it's not, it's a patient look at brotherhood and also passion. The, the, the fact that these guys starting at a young age became so obsessed with this one thing it's this like you know uh phantom thread vertigo level of like dedication <laughs> and like obsession almost um and uh it's also the a documentary that doesn't rely on narration and talking heads it's just footage okay uh moving on to uh i don't think this is in your top 10 but i know you like it uh hong Sing- Sue's the novelist film novelists film no I, there's no hong in my top 10 this year he did three movies this year but not a one uh yeah well i've i talked about this one actually uh two weeks ago when we did our individual achievements i talked about it quite a bit so i won't say much more there but um uh as usual the 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 sort of push and pull between like the loosely hangout nature of his films but also the like precision of social interaction that absolutely seems to, to come up in his movies is it's all there in the novelist film it's it's very funny often very awkward and of course people sit around and get drunk uh, <laughs> all right uh next honorable mention for me is james cameron's avatar the way of water definitely not a top 10 contender but uh worthy honorable mention uh yeah i mean it was uh there were a few of these like big movies at least one will probably come up later this year like big uh studio you know genre action expensive movies uh this was the best one of those for me um and uh just reiterated the things that i've i'm going to reverse engineer what i've said uh um about chris nolan who uh, (laughs) i've said that christopher nolan like just is i think i said he's james cameron but he thinks he's stanley kubrick is what i've said um whereas james cameron is christopher nolan without the (laughs) self-consciousness you know it's just the the uh he's just so amazing a great big uh not just spectacle but spectacle in motion and uh the shot choice camera movement and editing that keeps this thing at three hours and 12 minutes keeps it moving and, and produces these moments like, <laughs> you know, a, a sentient whale flopping onto a ship to kill a bunch of guys with its Hell yeah. fins, both as awesome. And also weirdly as beautiful. <laughs> as, as, yeah. As that was going to be my pushback to you. Hanging with Christopher Nolan. Cause I was, I would say that Christopher Nolan with the heart. I mean, I like Nolan, I think maybe more than you do. And, but every time he tries to reach for the emotional hook, it always feels like he's stretching himself. Whereas it always feels so natural with Cameron. Um, yeah, Cameron's. Then, I think Cameron's a big old softy at heart, except oh, he's absolutely. apparently a huge asshole to everyone. I know, right? <laughs> um, apparently, he's gotten calmer as the years have gone. Um, oh, yeah, I, I just wanted to pay the way of water some compliments because I didn't care much for the first Avatar. And so I went with some trepidation um, to this. And honestly, for most of the film, it was like hit or miss whether or not it was working for me. Every time I kept cutting back to the mis- the mercenary guys, I was like, come on, man, these <laughs> freaking assholes again. 
And there's just parts that dragged for me. And so what really impressed me, one is like the last set piece, which lasts like probably at least 45 minutes. It takes yeah. forever, but it's so great and so thrilling. And it's like just combining all the great James Cameron shit into one package. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then for it to get to that moment where Sigourney Weaver's character is like leading her mom and family, like out of the like shipwreck with like the, I can't remember, like the glowing fish, like surrounding her or something. Something like that. Yeah. That to pay off as big as it did emotionally for me. I was like, okay, something about this film was working the entire time in the background in a way I wasn't clocking. So yeah, I, I really dug it. All right. And then my last honorable mention is Amanda Kramer's please baby, please. uh, Which is a super fun pastiche super fun but also sometimes very dark uh <laughs> pastiche of like you know west side story theatrical like urban gangsters from like greaser type uh gangsters but also a more modern maybe uh uh idea of sexual fluidity and sexual power balance sure. um uh so much of it is about andrea riseborough um it's a small film with a big heart is what i'm trying to say uh <laughs> no andrea riseborough and her husband played by harry melling um at the be- very beginning of the movie they witness a mugging turned murder uh, a bunch of greasers just beat a man to death right outside their apartment building um and they both react to having seen this in very different ways uh in and in, in ways that are the maybe the opposite of what our gender assumptions would lead us to assume anyway mm-hmm. i can't go I, this is honorable mention i can't talk about it as much as i i want to as you can see it just barely missed my my top 10 but uh it's it's such a it's it, well it's a, it's a singular vision of of a movie that even though it is borrowing from all of these these other things it's so much fun uh outside of the main cast it also has demi moore uh, in a very small role and uh cola scola if you know um him uh i think he's mostly a tv guy he's um on difficult people and uh later seasons of search party uh he shows up he's he's great um yeah, uh, yeah. I can't say anything more about it because we don't have the time. But yeah, please, baby, please, just miss the top ten. I'm learning now. Cola Scola, born in Oregon. Damn right. All right. Um, no, I saw. Please, baby, please. I, I liked it a lot. So okay. All uh, right. Are we into it then? Yeah. So what's your? Let's start with your number ten. All right. So here's the thing with my number ten. Um. I, this was the spot I waffled on. Babylon is sitting in here for a little bit, but ultimately I had to steer into the skid and uh, go with Olivia Wilde's Don't Worry Darling. Um, nice. So I, I was really impressed with this at the time and understood, but couldn't really uh, respect the beefs people had with it. Um, and I was thinking about where the film industry's at these days, a lot of people will compare like our late superhero era to like the late sixties or mid sixties Hollywood before like the new Hollywood movement came into play. And, and what the same period where all these films that like 
kind of didn't work, but also like kind of did in really like instinctive guttural ways. I'm thinking of like two weeks, in another town or where the boys are red line 7,000 or the group, which I talked about in the TCM episode earlier this year, all these like attempts to be a little more zeitgeisty than Hollywood is hip to be. And I know that sounds like a diss, but I have a lot of affection for these kind of movies. I think they're, they tell you so much about the culture at the time and they're so revealing in a weirdly vulnerable way of um, both people trying to stay tapped in and of where their instincts are in being tapped into that culture. And I think Don't Worry Darling has a lot of that too. It has some of the limitations of a big Hollywood movie with a lot of stars in it. Um, But it also has a certain willingness to be adventurous and a desire to um, uncover uh, an interiority that a lot of mainstream films are not at all concerned with. Um, I'm not going to give away where the big twist leads, even though most people by this point, if they don't already know it, have guessed it because it's pretty obvious, at least the vague architecture around which it settles. Um, One of the complaints I've heard is that it should have revealed that a lot sooner and been about sort of like, and escape from that environment. But what's really, I think, effective and powerful about the movie is that it's so grounded in a certain feeling of being trapped and being um, terrorized by your environment and unable to escape. And the way it kind of circles around that and has this really great dream imagery that I think a film like Blonde attempted much less successfully um, and can get really wild and unusually unwieldy in how it circles that uh, state where even kind of the people who are most benefiting from the environment seem to be losing control themselves. Um, and I, I mean, Florence Pugh, I just think is really one of the best actresses working today. And I think this is probably the best showcase I've seen so far for her talents. Um, Chris Pine is also really sharp and fairly funny in it. And uh, to quote an article I read around the time of the film release, Harry Styles is fine. He's perfectly fine. (laughs) Um, He was, of course, uh, recast when uh, Shia LaBeouf was fired from the film for his onset behavior and several other revelations that came out around the time the film was shooting. Um, But someone like Shia LaBeouf would only dig into the scumminess of that character. And it's no surprise by the vague architecture of the film that Harry Styles is kind of plays this kind of a scumbag. But what's great about Harry Styles is he can roll in and present himself as very smooth and very convincingly um, almost ineffectual to the point that you're like, well, he can't really be that bad a guy because he's just kind of a doof. Um, And even though he doesn't quite have the acting count to pull off the full transformation, there's something kind of disarming about his presence in the film. Nevertheless, Um, I wasn't a big fan of Olivia Wilde's book smart, but this is a massive step up for her as a director it has a lot of, like I said, visual adventurousness. Even from the start, it's the film starts off with this kind of classically 50s party um, of people drinking too much and then cuts to uh, Florence Pugh and Harry Styles like wildly driving their uh, convertible around the desert, um, which has this great kind of unhinged, unwieldy quality that sets the film off in just the right note. And then because it's kind of like in this vague dream space and like how much is real, how much isn't, what is this world... Um, there's a lot of just great kind of cool imagery they get from it. Um, so yeah, uh, 
don't worry, darling. It's a film that I really stand behind and really uh, hope will stand the test of time in some way. Yeah, I wish I'd gotten around to it. Um, uh, I liked Booksmart more than you did. I think the thing that I didn't like about Booksmart has come to bother me more in like TV now. So maybe I would like it less if I saw it now, which is that thing of like uh, basically liberal writers creating a world in which everyone's a liberal and there's no friction (laughs) there whatsoever that bothered me a little bit now maybe it would bother me more but then i go back but then if i think about like uh billy lord and skyler gizondo in in booksmart i'd start laughing all over again so i'm gonna keep i'm just gonna not watch watch booksmart again and keep my fond memory (laughs) of how many how many times i laughed during it all right so you kicked off with a big hollywood movie i'm doing the opposite i'm going to my first two movies are really going to be earning the pretension part of our yeah. show's title um, in that a lot of people have probably not heard of them. Uh, but I am my, my number 10 movie of the year uh, is directed by Maya Duverdier and Amelie Van Elpt. And it's a documentary called Dreaming Walls Inside the Chelsea Hotel. Um, I saw this back in July, maybe early August uh, and walked out of the theater with Natalie saying that movie's probably going to be in my top 10 list and it just barely <laughs> hung on, uh, hung on there. It is not, I did. I, this is another, uh, plus side of going into movies, not knowing anything, just that like, uh, it was the movie, go movie, go movie that week. And I had a free night and I was nice. like, I'll, I'll go and didn't really know anything about it. Assumed it was a documentary about the Chelsea hotel, which it is, but it's not a documentary about the history of the Chelsea hotel. It gets into that through its interviews with the residents, but it's about the people who live in the Chelsea hotel currently, mm. or at least currently at the time of shooting, which I think was, uh, like 2018, 2019, um, people who are longtime residents of the Chelsea hotel who have, organically this connection to the Chelsea hotels storied past of being a haven for, uh, for artists and, and outsiders and dreamers and junkies and all of that sort of thing. And now is being fully, the neighborhood has been so, uh, uh, gentrified that the place has been bought and it used to be run by a guy who was kind of like a nut, but a, just loved the arts and loved that his place's reputation was, was that now it's owned by a, you know, developer of company who are, uh, planning to, uh, gut it and turn it into, you know, more boutique, a boutique hotel with maybe some luxury apartments and, uh, you know, a fucking gastropub and bar or whatever on the first <laughs> floor, whatever, uh, that, that sort of thing. But there are people who, because of New York's laws who still live there and are living their lives every day in this place that is under construction, um, all, all of the time, or their apartments have gotten smaller because of renovations or, or things like that. But, um, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not like an architecture nut, but I'm like, I'm enough of an LA history nut that architecture comes up a bit. So I think about architecture a little bit is what I'm trying to say. Sure. And this movie is a portrait of human beings, but it's also a portrait of a building and the way that, uh, things, things sort of to be spiritual, mystical about it, things sort of remain and, and hang around in, in, in old buildings, uh, with, with stories 
and uh, the the existence of these people who are all um, at least in their 60s, many of them are much older, um, uh, is a reminder that like the past, you know, what, you know, the saying the past is not done with us or whatever. The past is, the past is still here. It, it didn't, it, it doesn't, the world doesn't get remade anew every generation or, or whatever. Um, it, so it turns the building I said in my, in my letterbox review into a living palimpsest. I guess I was trying to be <laughs> fancy back in, Oh, this was July. July 14th. Uh, I guess I was trying to be fancy, um, but uh, that no matter what happens to the building until they tear it down, some some echo of its past seems to want to not want to leave easily. And the cynic in me says that once these people die off and they buy up the developers, buy those apartments, it actually will be completely removed because I feel like I've seen that happen to other places, but uh, the movie Dreaming Wells at least argues otherwise that they're uh, the the history lives on in the present, I guess. Right on. Yeah, no, it's, I hadn't even heard of it, but it sounds great. Um, so the Chelsea, it's like a residential place and not like you check in. I think it, you know, it has, or whatever. Uh, it has, I think it has both okay. historically. And, and these are the people who live at the Chelsea hotel um, and probably pay very little in rent because they've lived there since, you know, the 1970s or whatever. Uh, all gotcha. right. Number nine for you. Number nine for me. So uh, this gets into the central theme of my list, which is really steering into my uh, own bullshit. And uh, like, I think six out of my 10 films here are by French female directors um so buckle up it's going to be um in some ways very similar territory as we go along um the first is uh no surprise that this will be the first of two claire Denis movies both sides of the blade um this uh stars julie pinoche and vincent lindon as a long-standing couple they've been together about 10 years and have a very uh very fruitful, very happy existence. Um, the opening of the film is literally them like swimming in this very idyllic water and just like caressing each other's bodies and kissing and just having the time of their lives. Um, enter a former lover of Juliet Binoche's, um, played by Gregoire Colon. Um, and she, at first she just sees him like passing on the street and she's kind of so overwhelmed by the sight of him that she has like a miniature breakdown in the, her, the elevator on her way up to work. Um, and we get the sense right away that either her character is so unstable that she can't function from the very side of seeing a former lover or that um, she's kind of playing an idea of a person and a certain um, I'm trying to think of what, um, oh man, Ingmar Bergman said something really great about persona that it wasn't like a character piece. It was something else, but I guess a central like emotion or central problem for, uh, a person to work through. And that kind of extrapolates out as the film goes on. It, um, was shot during like heavy COVID lockdown periods. And so has a very mm. small cast. There's one kind of like party scene, but that's very brief. Um, for the most part, it's about the three of them. And then uh, Vincent Lindon's mother, played by uh, 
Boulet Auger, who's a big French, legendary French actress, and then his son, who is living with his mother because Vincent Lindon's character uh, does not time in jail. And so um, he can't feel or maybe doesn't have the legal right to be looking after his son. The details there are a little sketchy. Um, so it's really about the five of them and the degree to which is kind of centered around them kind of reminded me of like watching a play and you'd get like characters entering, recapping where they'd been in some form or another. And it becomes very focused around their uh, internal experience. Um, the screenplay was is by Denis and author Christine Engault, um, who wrote the novel upon which the film is based. The two of them had collaborated before on an adaptation of a novel by someone else entirely um, for Let the Sunshine In, which to me is one of the great films of the 21st century. And this is a very interesting follow-up and similar way of yeah using people to explore kind of emotional ideas. And this is something French cinema is really good about overall is making emotional, these kind of intellectual ideas and what kind of comes down to the central concern of the movie as it goes on. Um, and as Julia Binoche becomes more intertwined with um, her former lover and as Vincent Madonna, in fact, becomes intertwined with him as well, because the two of them used to be friends. And now um, the former love is presenting a business opportunity for Vincent Lindon's character, who, again, has done some time in jail and isn't overwhelmed with business opportunities. So he's very um, kind of keyed into this potential one. And this, of course, causes fissures in their own relationship. And the whole film becomes about the sense in which we, the degree to which we owe the people we love, our lives, our time, our attention, and um, event like our commitment, really, um, and this plays out too with Vincent Lindon's son. He gets very like lecturing with him and seems to be like kind of put upon that he has to be a father to him. Um, it's not a happy emotional space to explore, but it's a very interesting one. And one that I think people in any sort of like either like a romantic relationship or a familiar relationship, any relationship where you're tied with another person or a few other people for a good portion of your life, you end up asking these kind of questions of like, how much of my life am I supposed to give over to them? How much uh, of myself am I supposed to give up to maintain this relationship? Um, and yeah, it's just a really moving, really patiently done exploration of that. And as with most Clarity movies, has a pretty rock and tender sticks soundtrack yeah. as well. Yeah, you. I was gonna. That was gonna be my uh, little thing to add in. Uh, yeah, you said you said it all. I don't really have much else to to say. I also really liked it. Um, yeah and it's um i i liked this is true of both claire denis movies i liked its lack of judgment of its characters yes for uh, sure um the last thing i did mean to mention is that it uh, tinder sticks actually came up with the title for the film because it was originally going to be called fire and the french title is like with love and determination is what it translates literally to which is the name of the novel um but then tinder sticks wrote a cool song for the end of the movie called both sides of the blade and clarity was like that's what the movie has to be called that perfectly <laughs> describes this movie and it's true it's like both sides of the blade of love you know there it kind of slices the way you want it sometimes and then slices against you other times uh yeah well done tinder sticks and claire denis um all right so my next movie that um no one's ever heard of uh, is another documentary it's called i, I didn't see you there it's directed by reed davenport and this is a sort of uh, personal sort of um, 
uh, a personal diary type of documentary. Uh, Reed Davenport is a filmmaker who uh, it doesn't it doesn't say in the movie what um, uh, his health or, or medical affliction is, but he is disabled, uses a, a motorized wheelchair, and also his disability affects his speech as well. Um, and uh, in his past work, mm-hmm. which I've not seen, but this comes up in the movie, in his past work, he has made films that prominently feature disability. Hmm. This, he takes a different approach. This is a sort of diary of his day-to-day life, living on his own in in Oakland and then occasionally going to visit family. Uh, but you never see him. He narrates the entire thing. You never see him in the movie uh, or at least not, I think there is, you see his shadow a number of times. I think there is like one near the end, like shot where he's way off in the distance and you can't see him. But the point is not to show you disabled people, but to literally show you this person's vision of the point of view of the world, mm-hmm. like literally see the movie through his eyes. And he takes as his sort of jumping off point. The fact that in his neighborhood in Oakland, uh, there's a, circus tent going up because they're they're having it the circus has come to town and so he keeps coming back to this history of freak shows um in in relation to how he feels he is sometimes uh viewed um in in our in our culture uh and look i mean there's the famous quote about movies being machines that generate empathy if and there's an idea that like an artist makes art to help you see the world the way that they do. That's one way of thinking about art. And I've never seen so literal a version of that. That's so effective um, as, as I I didn't see you there. It's um, incredibly moving. And uh, one of the most fascinating things that of what he, because obviously it's not, it's only 72 minutes and you shot it over months or whatever. It's not uh, unfiltered. Obviously he's, <laughs> he, he's influencing it with the way he edits it. And one thing that's fascinating about what he chooses to leave in is that you get very little of people like mistreating him because mm. he's disabled. What you get is a lot of like people being like overly, maybe even patronizingly, oh, helpful, sure. you know, um and and uh you get to or get to or are able to um be put in his in in his shoes and in his in his seat and 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 see what it what it what it would be like to be talked to like you're a child um all, all day when you're just trying to get to the store or to work or whatever uh yeah really um really impressive and i always try to I always try to keep at least one slot um, in my top 10 for something that no one's heard of <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> do, do my job to uh, bring it to other people. And that's, I, it, it, I saw it on the PBS app. Um, I think you have to be a sub there's like free stuff on the PBS app. And then there's like subscriber level stuff. And I, because I support PBS, I am a subscriber. Um, I, I can't remember which level it's at, um, but that's where I, that's how I saw it. If you're looking to see it, um, I think it's on the PBS app, but you might have to donate $5. Harsh PBS, man, really sticking it to you. <laughs> well, they don't get enough funding from the da- the damn government. Lord knows. Um, they got to rely on us. 
Yeah, I was pulling it up here. It doesn't say whether or not you have to uh, pay for it or not. But yeah, it sounds really cool. Yeah. Um, how did you hear about this? Uh, I think I uh might deny i think i've said on the podcast before i actually this might have been on the patreon patreon.com slash battles of pretension uh the number one way i come up with my like list of things i want to see before we do this episode at the end of the year is drilling into the individual ballots on the film comment poll oh sure and so i think this was on like more than one usually if a movie that i've never heard of is on multiple lists i start going i wonder what that is so yeah uh, and then the fact that I had access to the PBS app because I am a monthly do- monthly donor. They don't call it a subscription. That's what it is, but they right, call it, yeah. uh, I, I donate $5 a month to PBS. And so I get to see stuff. So because I had it, it was available to me and it had piqued my interest. That's how I uh, came to watch it. Right on. All right. My number eight um, is Noah Baumbach's White Noise, um, which I waffled on including given the very coincidental like shockingly so uh train accident in um the very town where they filmed the train accident in white noise wait Um, i did not know that part really yeah no Um, i i I, when i heard about this train accident i thought about white noise which is weird but uh that's crazy i didn't know it was in the same place yeah um so i just wanted to acknowledge that for any listeners who might have a similar association at this point um that uh the recent train accident is very tragic and going to be an ongoing tragedy for you know generations really in this town Mm. um and i just want to acknowledge that because white noise is a very funny movie i guess because um it takes a similar kind of tragedy and extrapolates that to kind of unimaginably uh comedic and satiric ends but i think Centrally, it's about how people navigate those kind of things. Um, I haven't read the novel on which it's based. Those who I know who have read the novel and seen the movie are kind of less impressed with the movie and good for mm. them, I suppose. <laughs> um, I mainly was surprised at how much I liked it because I, well, I've liked a lot of Noah Baumbach movies in the past. I never made a movie that's been my top 10. Um, they always seem to at best come a little bit short of it. I'm thinking in terms of like my Red stories or mistress America, both of which were probably like top 20, 25 movies. Um, and so for this to be his first adaptation for this to be the first, really the biggest movie he's made in his career and be executing like set pieces before, um, and to land in this successfully was pretty remarkable and to be taking a writer as distinctive as Don DeLillo, um, and still make it feel and make the dialogue, especially feel like a Noah Baumbach movie um, was really kind of cool to experience. Um, so yeah, it's the train accident is one of many incidents that kind of spring up around the film, which is, I would say centrally concerned with the confidence of white American men. Um, what's so great about Adam driver's character is that um he is certain that everything will be just fine. He's certain that his marriage is on solid ground every time. I, I love all the problems his kids throw at him and he's just constantly like, it will work out because it works out. And I think as you know, white American men, it's easy to reach a certain point in life and just assume that everything will be fine because everything has generally worked out for you. And as soon as things start going wrong, really wrong for him where he needs to take action and needs to like evacuate his family and stuff. He seems constantly flummoxed that he needs to be doing the things he's doing. Um, 
and I love the way that gets pulled out comedically. The scene of the year for me, at least one of them is the scene between him and his doctor who is like played by the most cheerful man in the world and going on about um, his commitment as a patient and how patient doctor combination is really key to medical success. (laughs) Meanwhile, Adam driver is just trying to get out of there and just trying to find the least possible information he could give his doctor in order to get some kind of medical clearance. So he doesn't have to think about the fact that he might've been poisoned. Um, He's not really that concerned with that, whether or not he might have been poisoned, but just that a doctor can tell him he wasn't, Um, which I, and I, and I'm sure many men can relate to. I think often of the Roger Ebert quote, where he says it's the great tradition of the American male to be brought kicking and screaming towards anything that might be doing any level of good. Um, (laughs) Um, You're talking by the way about a, a, BP nominee, yeah, uh, Fra- Francis Jew. Yeah, I can remember his name, but yeah, yeah. At amazing performance. Um, and then it, this also bears out in like, I mean, they're comedically tragic, but semi-tragic ways in his relationship with his wife, played by Greta Gerwig, um, whom I had missed on screen in ways I wasn't expected to by the time she showed up. Um, she's you know off to a fine directing career, and I'm very much looking forward to Barbie as much as anybody. But uh, she's such a good actress, and um, it's so it's such a shame that she doesn't do as much acting as she used to, um, because her presence here just reminded me how unusual and how distinctive and how unique her talents are. That she can take the long kind of confrontation scene between her and Adam Driver, which starts off amazing with him just fumbling for the light, which got me laughing a good deal. Um, but then kind of devolves into them really confronting everything about their marriage. And, you know, my flippant response is that I think it's a more honest portrait of marital confrontation than like him pounding the wall in a marriage story. Um, I think the way that they kind of dodge and weave and try to get one over on one another in the course of that conversation um, speaks to kind of a painful, honest truth that emerges in strained marriages and um trying to think of what else broadly wants oh aesthetically i just think it's a really accomplished film too and in a way that bombax movies i think often fall short even while he's maybe trying to do something more adventurous um but here he's staying with cinematographer lowell crowley for i believe the first time crowley shot um like vox lux and andrew Hague's 45 years and is good with drawing a lot of aesthetically interesting things out of his premises and here he has to you know, at first it's almost playing like an 80s a satire of like 80s sitcoms where it's like really bright colors and kind of like overly colorful sweaters and Greta Gerwig's absurd hair with Don Tito lovingly comments on. Yeah. Um, but which can take the turn into like, yeah, disaster movie, adventure escape, uh, almost film noir by the time we get to the magnificent large Adinger's um, one scene which is spectacular. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a movie that has to bob and weave between a lot of different modes, but I think has such a strong central core in what Adam Driver and Gregor would draw out of it that um, really keeps it moving. So yeah, really audacious film and really adventurous film that I was surprised to see Bombach achieve as well as he did. And I'm glad that he did. Yeah. I mean, um, you, uh, you hit on the aesthetic thing that I was going to hit on, but it's just, uh, it's fun to see it's it's rewarding it's heartening to see uh noah bombach who could absolutely rest on his laurels in a certain yeah. like uh a, a certain vein um a certain rut if you will of sort of like american indie 
like elder statesman type of uh, type of role but seeing this and i would argue to some extent mistress america uh represents a different yeah, totally. uh point of view um which mistress america i don't know if this is a hot take to say is probably my favorite bombach maybe even still maybe even more than white noise i mean it's top three for me so i got i got yeah. no complaints here um uh, maybe I need to see. I've, I've seen Mistress America more than once. Maybe I need to see yeah. uh, White Noise again. But uh, yeah, it's exciting to see him um, have the sort of um, uh, what's what I'm looking for the 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 passion of I think a younger, less established filmmaker. Totally. But the but the skill of you know uh, a Noah Baumbach. All right. Am I up next? Number eight. Yep. That was that was your number eight. My number eight. Uh I don't know how to say the director's last name. Is it Chow Cho Chu? Davy Cho's Return to Soul. Great movie. Um this is yeah, this is the most recent addition to my top ten. Um I didn't see it uh you know via the advanced means that I usually get to see. I just like <laughs> had to wait for it to open somewhat wide and just go see it at a theater, which was a lot of fun. Uh even though it was the Lemley Royal, which I normally like, but the sound was down too low the entire movie. Oh, interesting. They don't usually have that problem there. Yeah. It was maybe someone complained. It was like too quiet and so kind of you want to know something very unusual about the sound at every Lemley theater that is gonna make me sound like a complete lunatic, but okay. is a good tell for the next at Lemley Theater. So their trailers play at kind of a lower volume, the lights are still on, people are gathering in sound supposed to kick in when the feature starts now you'll know as a frequent lemley attendee that they have the little pre-roll show with like the lamb dancing and like yep. the crowd gathering and stuff so when it does the final ramp out music out of that at the very last note of that you can usually hear the sound kick up significantly and that's oh. your tell that they got it up to standards for the final presentation so if that oh. doesn't click in and you feel like you can still make a run to the lobby and only miss the first yeah. minute of the film there you go. Um, uh, yeah, maybe I should have done that. I mean, it, it, the movie's good enough that it wasn't much of a distraction, but the movie also, I won't, you know, uh, say what happens at the end, but the final scene is very quiet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and some guy decided that like, he could tell this was the end and he was like, I'm out three minutes before the end of the movie. I'm <laughs> out. And he very, I don't know if he was like trying to be slow to be quiet but he very slowly made his way down the stairs from the top of the the, the stadium seating. But with his windbreaker running along the metal <laughs> the metal handrail the entire time, so it was just like a minute and a half of like <laughs> during this like very uh, emotional but still climax of, yeah, yeah. of the movie. Um, uh, I wish I could just make all of my. Uh, discussions of these top 10 movies just fun stories from having seen the movie but uh let's talk about the movie itself which uh stars a first-time actor named park jimin who's amazing absolutely amazing. captivating uh who is uh korean born was adopted by a french uh family when she was um still like an infant i think um and has sort of on a whim when we first meet her um we don't know what year it is. I think I, I kept, 
I know this doesn't matter, but I kept trying to do the math as the movie right. went on because it, it, it keeps jumping years. So I kept trying to like reverse engineer. So what year did the movie start? 2014. <laughs> I kept trying to figure it out. Anyway, um, I think it's about 2014. That's the point. Uh, has someone on a whim come to 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 Seoul, um, the place of her birth for the first time, claiming to not be interested in meeting her or, or trying to meet her um, birth parents, but uh, very quickly goes down that road. And the movie keeps being a surprise. The the um, it's a return to Zoe. Obviously, the premise that I just gave you is she was born there. She's coming back there. But also, the movie itself returns to Seoul many, many times uh, as it as it jumps through the the years, nearly a decade over the course of the the, the two hours. Uh, I think it's actually more than a decade, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you just saw it. I shouldn't question you. Yeah, I thought. Uh, well, again, I, I don't think it ever specifically says what year it is, but counting the like numbers of years ahead of jumps. Yeah. All right. I think you it's go just on. under a decade. Anyway. Um, uh, yeah. Now you made me lose my train of thought. That's I'm okay. sorry. I, I've been doing that very easily this uh, today. Um, so yeah, fantastic performance. What was I saying? Oh yeah. I wanted to get back to that, like on a whim coming to Seoul. How much that's true or not is unclear, but what becomes clear in this portrait of this woman named Freddie Frederica um, or Frederic, she's not Italian, she's French. So Frederic, um, what becomes clear is how un she is in, in her life. Um, and there is maybe the suggestion that part of this has to do with her, uh, uh, un- her unsurety about her identity being Korean and being French mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, and there's definitely like other people in the movie who have been adopted that like, like talk about uh, she talks about this, this with, but it's also clearly not a movie that is just about, this is the plight of the adopted uh, child or whatever. It's more, a more personal character study uh, or, or more specific character study than that. But this is, but it seems like it, it repeatedly seems through the movie throughout the movie, even when we jump ahead and that she seems to have her shit together and have like a really well paying job. And she's got these nice fitting like business suits. She's, she always seems to be like one wrong move away from spinning out at any moment. Um, and what I found so beautiful about the movie as it goes on. And you can tell me if this was your read on the movie too, um, is that, it ends in a place of, like I mentioned, the quiet. It ends in a place of a little bit of peace. And to me, that peace was not like, oh, she's at rest and she's found her place in the world, but more that she has reconciled herself with the chaos of the world. Hmm. Um, and and that was that was to me the big catharsis of of the movie was uh, she. And this probably has a lot to do with my own. You know, I might be projecting because of my own struggles and therapy and meditation and stuff. That like um, the point isn't to make everything. The point isn't always to make everything okay. The point is to be more okay with with the right. world. Uh, so maybe I am projecting, but that's what that's. I think that. The fact that that's what I saw in the movie is probably why I found it so moving and, and why it ended up in my top 10. Yeah. Um, I didn't have that reading of it, which isn't to say that I disagree with your reading. I just hadn't considered that angle of it. Um, my wife, Julie kind of like, uh, 
made fun of me for this but um after we saw the movie she was she was she liked it but not as much as i did and she was asking me what i responded to so much about it i really couldn't come up with anything other than i really like seeing people be lonely on screen um <laughs> which is true and she's lonely for much of the movie and it's a great kind of loneliness where she's surrounded by people for much of it but can't find a way to connect to them and yeah. isn't finding quite the emotional purchase in soul that you know maybe she didn't set out to but clearly had hoped to and hope to find some kind of grounding there that maybe she didn't have in France. Um, I really like like the scene with the conversation with her mother just has on the phone where her mom was like, Oh, well, we always plan to go to Seoul together. And we, you know, and which just kind of points to how long she had been, had this kind of dissatisfaction that she couldn't yeah. quite put a finger on um, because I can't remember if you mentioned this, but she has mentioned that her first trip to Seoul was very impulsive that she could just kind of like went on a whim almost. Um and much of the rest of the film seems to be just unpacking where that whim came from. Yeah. Um, yeah it's one I'd like to see again because there's a lot of nuance and because it, the structure of it completely took me by surprise. Um, so it'd be interesting to kind of revisit it knowing how it unfolds. All right. So we're on to your number seven. Yeah. Uh, this was another very recent entry into my top 10 less so because I saw it quite recently I did, but more that it was just kind of floating outside of my top 10 until I was really cementing the list and f- felt like I just couldn't uh, go without it. It's um, Sebastian Maisie's, I'm going to guess that's how I pronounce his last name, and Great Freedom, um, which I talked about on the Patreon movie journal quite recently, but um, is about, uh, it starts in the early to mid 1960s, takes place in Germany, um about a man played by franz rogowski um who listeners might remember from christian petzl's transit or undine um wait is it undine no that's yeah he is he not an undine i was trying to remember if that's the name of the movie or if that's the name of there's uh another no, no. aquatic romance movie with uh colin farrell that has some similar name and i that's called like undine i think i think oh yeah no but they're based on the same like sort of mythical sea creature I hadn't even considered that, but that's why they have a very similar name. Uh, yeah, so uh, he was in those Christian Petzl movies. He's also in um, Hidden Life, the Terrence Malick movie. Anyway, he's been kind of like, I feel like it now he's a pretty established actor, but has been kind of coming up in the ranks over the last 10 years. Um, and this is probably his best performance that I've seen so far. Um, if for no other reason than it kind of challenged my feeling on him as an actor, which like so much of it, so much of his performances and roles he gets play into that he's kind of a weird looking guy. And so there's something like always a little off or a little lonely, or a little desperate about him here. Uh, the first time we see him, he's just like picking up loads of guys in a restroom in Germany. And so he's like, he's got some swagger to him and it's like, he's this kind of like cool, hip, uh, sexy guy. Um, but it is the mid early to mid 1960s in Germany and he gets thrown in jail for uh lewd acts or however they phrased it under Germany's anti-homosexual law. Um, when he gets back into jail, you can tell that this has happened to him many times before. He just kind of has a very resigned attitude towards it. Just like this is going to be another round. And he meets up with uh, an older man um, played by uh, George Frederick Um who clearly they've known each other through the course of uh, Rogowski being in jail. And um, clearly the older guy is there for the long haul because he did something much worse than uh, sleep with men. Um, but the two of them kind of share some grounding or understanding. 
and through a series of very elegantly executed flashbacks to uh, the mid fifties and then more per- most pertinently the immediate post-war period, um, we kind of figure out where their bond came from, how it evolved over the years, how they've challenged each other, how they've kept each other company and um, where it's all gone. The older guy is not, um, in fact, when they first meet in the forties is very aggressively not gay. Um, and uh, the way that they end up bonding is sometimes some of the familiar territory of like, well, you don't like me. I don't like you, but we're stuck in this hellhole together. We must make the best of it. And then on turns becomes unexpectedly tender and very poignant and uh, makes some moves narratively that are a little bold within that framework. Um but the thing it's kind of like teasing out of as we get back into why they were both in jail in the early forties is that uh, Franz Rogowski, and this isn't really giving too much away, um, was also a prisoner in concentration camps because in addition to imprisoning, torturing and murdering Jewish people and gypsies and all sorts of ethnic minorities, the Nazis were also after gay people, um, which if you're familiar with German cinema of the twenties, there were a lot of gay people hanging out in Germany at the time. Um, but when the allies liberated the concentration camps, they still put the gay people right back in jail. You know, they set the Jewish people free. They set all the minorities free, but not uh, the gay people. It was still illegal to be gay in Germany for many years after that. So um, in many ways, uh, Rogowski's character is free, um, you know, from the structures of war, but he's still not living into him a free society. And a lot of the way that Rogowski plays his posturing against the system is in that kind of certainty that he's not going to be at home uh, in the outside world. So he might as well live, you know, in a truthful manner because the outside world is in its own form, just as unwelcoming as prison might be. Um, And it just keeps drawing out the nature of their relationship more and more and more to a very strangely moving uh, final scene that um, really is an unexpected way to achieve the end that you might expect from this sort of thing. Um, But yeah, I was just really blown away by it. And along the way it managed to be like kind of traditionally narrative and compelling. It's not all like it's a downbeat film for sure, but it also gets into like how amusing it is that uh, most, you know, places that outlaw homosexuality, their solution is to throw them in jail with a bunch of men. Um, and that there are also other men in jail for exactly the same thing. So what do you think is going to happen? Um, so it has some fun with that idea too. And the various ways that uh, men, in those situations create a structure around which to help still have a good time every now and again. Yeah. I, I didn't see it. Uh, it sounds great. And I do like friends Rogowski. Uh, I don't know if you've seen my number seven. The last time, the last couple times I've mentioned it to you, you've been saying, "Oh yeah, I mean to get to that." So did <laughs> yeah, you ever get around? Haven't. Yeah, because did you ever get around to seeing Phil Tippett's Mad God? Nope, <laughs> didn't didn't make it happen. Uh, it's number seven for me, uh, and I don't know if I'm in a place to unpack the thematic or philosophical intentions of Mad God. Uh, I just want to talk about how immediately and fully I was enraptured in the world that Phil Tippett has created here and in the rhythms and poetry of the 
of the shots that he composes and the uh, incredible production design and the the things he thinks of to happen <laughs> in in these worlds. The the story, to the extent that it matters, um, is a uh, um, a character who is the credits refer to him as the assassin. I don't, but he, there's no dialogue in the movie. Um, is sort of lowered into this ground level realm of post apocalyptic Earth or whatever it's supposed <laughs> to be, uh, and he traverses through the ruins and uh, dodges encounters with uh, mutated monsters and stuff. But then he goes underground and goes deeper, and and that's I think the. Uh, uh, maybe I am going to get into the the point of the movie. The point of view of the movie is is that uh, there's no there's no ending or beginning. You know, mm-hmm. when we start watching the movie, we think like, okay, we're seeing the beginning of this guy's journey. As things go on and more is revealed, we kind of start to question like, is that what we're seeing? Like, is are these things just uh, replaying themselves over and over again? Is this? And then you start to wonder is is what I'm seeing the 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 last vestiges of a dead or dying society, or is it the beginning of a new one? Uh, and and so I think th- those are the the questions that the movie brings up. Uh, so I ended up getting into it uh, anyway without meaning to. Uh, but again, it's just all so beautiful and inventive, and um, there's. I'll give you one example of something. There's a, in one level, it's like a factory level where the factory itself produces workers that are made from like detritus or whatever. So they're like moving working bodies, but they're not, they don't seem to be, they can't talk. There's a question of how much, how sentient they are. And the reason that they're, uh, constantly being made is because the work in this factory, whatever it's making is very dangerous and they're constantly getting splattered. Um, <laughs> and so it's like funny, but also very sad uh, to see these, these man like figures get like just randomly splattered across the wall or whatever. Uh, it's just, and, and that's just one thing that happens in the movie that, it, that it's all full of things that are so inventive as, as that. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Scott, watch it. I know. I, I I do love just the basic idea. I mean, he was in production on it for what thirty years. Yeah. To I, I often marvel at uh, filmmaking in general, how you can maintain one idea over the course of a year or two, yeah. um, and to maintain like the clarity of vision to execute it, um, and have so few options to change it along the way. You know, kind of especially once you're in production, you're shooting and you're starting to make permanent decisions. It's not like a novel where you can go back and rewrite whole chapters. If you get to the end, it's not working. Um, so, and especially for something as painstaking as stop motion animation, to maintain that, that right. kind of thing over that long is really amazing. And I, I feel like a fool, David, and I'm sure I'll see it at some point. <laughs> All right. All number right. six for you. All right, number six um, is uh getting back into French female filmmakers, which will dominate the, the top six here. Um, Charlene Bourgeois, Anais in Love. Um, 
This stars Anais de Moustier, uh, of whom I have been a great big fan for the past 10 years uh, after I saw her in Bird People, which I know you're also quite fond of. Yeah. Um, and she's always played very well, these kind of like demure, a little reserved characters. Uh, from the first frame of this, she's in full sprint mode and uh, on her way to try to talk her landlord out of requiring another month's rent when she's already two months behind. Um, and meanwhile, uh, also trying to get out of uh, installing a smoke alarm and various other things. And so much of the movie is her trying to escape various responsibilities that she's stuck in um, and very, being very unsure of what she wants in life. Um, Demuste herself is like in her late thirties, but still looks like she's in her twenties. So I'm, Take it that the character is in her 20s, um, just kind of based on the point at which she's at in life and her general attitude. Um, and she is in a relationship with a guy about her own age um, who is dissatisfied with her unreliability. We meet him when she is running late to meet him for a movie and that they can't go into because she's already pa well past the starting point of it. Um the next time we hear about him, we understand they're kind of on the outs. She meets an older guy uh, who's a publisher um, and they kind of have an affair, but he doesn't want to completely up in his life. And she rather amusingly says, I, I don't want to be with people who don't know what they want, which is pointedly ironic and that she clearly has no idea what she wants. <laughs> um, but uh, in sort of like taking emotional stabs at this guy ends up running into, or kind of becomes like, obsessed in a kind of voyeuristic way with uh his wife and starts like reading her novels she's uh or are they novels and she's a writer of some kind um and then runs into her on the street unexpectedly and kind of introduces herself clearly at, it, with the intention i think at first of just kind of like poking at this guy's life and trying to like needle him but then kind of gradually becomes more genuinely interested in this woman um, to the ends one might expect. It, it, the film is advertised as um, kind of an LGBT movie um, and does get there, um, but takes longer to get there than I, I thought and really is a portrait of, a, of being a young person, really not knowing what you want, finding exactly what you want out of life and really determinedly chasing it. Um, the... Mine's wife, played by uh, Valerie Bruni Tedeschi, um, who I, I can't remember what, but I know I recognized her from various other films. I know that years. name. I know, right? Um, is, of course, much more set in her life uh, professionally and personally and takes some coercing even once they kind of fall in love to really upend it. Um, and their kind of push and pull is very playful and very amusing. And the whole movie is really unbelievably gorgeously shot by something like for uh, Noe Bach, um, who I'm not familiar with at all and whose resume does not suggest that I should be particularly familiar, um, but who creates a really lavish landscape of really beautiful, I think 16 millimeter images is really like color saturated and just kind of speaks to the uh, Anais's, um misplaced optimism at times but uh an optimism that, that seems to see her through i i think i likened this when i talked about it in our mid-year episode or likened her character to kind of like a high speed um max fisher in that she's involved in so many different things that more than she can possibly keep track of but is kind of more cheerful about them than max was and better at talking herself out of um various snags in the way those things overlap 
Um, it's Charlene Bourgeois Tickets' first film, and really hope she's on to do a lot more because um, I was deeply charmed by this and quite moved by it as well. All right. Um, yeah, I'm also looking up Valerie Bruni Tedeschi. The most Valeria Bruni Tedeschi. The most recent thing is Summer of '85. Right, um, that's where I would just know, have known her from because that was on my top ten list last year. But I'm trying to remember. She's one of the moms. I can't remember which mom she is. I think... Um, is she the one who runs the shop, or... I can't remember. I think she's the older kid's mom. Because okay. I feel like I remember her having that really funny scene with the younger kid and, like, making him undress um, oh, to, right. like, like, towards the beginning of the movie. I think that was her. Okay. All right, so number six for me... Yeah. Uh, I'm going to say Albert Seraz Pacifiction. This see, I mean, I'm getting into the dangerous territory. If I've talked about this movie <laughs> so much on the podcast, right. and like Movie Journal and like the individual achievements, that I'm like kind of running out of things to <laughs> to say about it uh, that I haven't already said. But um, yeah, so I, I, I've talked about the uh, movie as a portrait of a man seeing his the the power that he assumed was uh do him just his inherent power um slipping through his hands and not knowing what to do about it he's a, a french diplomat to a french polynesian island um and it seems that his bosses in the french government aren't being fully honest with him and also the locals with whom he prides himself on having uh, positive relationships uh, aren't really taking anything that he says uh, <laughs> at, at he and he but it's it's um so it's three hours of 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 him uh, becoming more and more lost but still trying to maintain his composure so that gets to the thing I talked about a couple weeks ago with him wearing the same cream white suit right the entire movie uh. And that's part of the movie. So I, I guess I'll talk more about just the um, aesthetic aesthetics of of the movie. Uh, it's so beautifully, warmly, tropically lit. It feels like a movie that it's the images feel like heavy with color, uh, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, that also comes through in the sound. Um, the uh, I talked before about the um, the whale having multiple candidates for worst scene of the year. A candidate for me for best scene of the year is when he's out on the ocean in his, you know, on a boat, on a pontoon boat or whatever, in his cream white suit. And uh, the waves, I, I don't know how, if this was all, if Albert Seurat read the weather report and planned, <laughs> I literally don't know how he got this shot. It's a long shot of the the waves Get, keep getting bigger and keep getting closer to the boat that he's on. It becomes overpowering and kind of terrifying. And then funny to see him like use his power to get like picked up on a jet ski and then taken <laughs> out of, taken out of harm's way, still wearing his cream white suit, sitting on the back of a jet ski jet ski. Um, that might be my favorite single scene that I've seen in any, any movie uh, this year. Um, and, that like I mean that might be the only one where I really go like I don't know how Sarah got that shot 
uh, or or like worked out that shot or planned it. Um, but there's plenty of things in the movie that feel that combination of like dreamy and nightmarish at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such an easy movie to get to get lost in um, to uh, to surrender yourself to. It feels like yeah, it feels like a kind of being in a kind of dream state. Yeah, I'm very excited to see it. Um, even though I, I've only seen one Albert Seurat movie, um, Death of Louis the something or rather, I can't remember yeah. if it's 15th or 14th. Um, I, I wasn't as enamored of that as I think a lot of people were, but um, I'll, I'll give his three-hour jaunt a shot. Yeah, I, just, this is my first of his, so yeah. Okay, it just came out in LA, This or is coming out this week. Um, so I'm hoping to catch you next week. All right. All right. Uh, my so num- number, five. number five. We're right. at the at the halfway point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we did the uh kind of forerunners yeah. well, so we're past the halfway point, I'd say. Um, so the next five films, all of which I had at um my number one spot at some point or another. Um so this is the order I'm landing on now, but they could easily be in any other order and i kind of proceeded mostly in kind of a thematic aesthetic way just to simplify it for myself um but yeah it it was never clear which of these would be number one um kind of speaks up to a thing about the year as a whole that i kind of talked about on twitter recently where i don't have a single film or a couple of films that i think are absolute landmark classics i already have two in 2023 that i like better than anything this past year and I had three in 2021 that I liked better than anything in 2022. It's nothing against these films. It's just, it did make it a lot harder to order them. Usually I have a very clear number one and two and three. And this year is like, I'd, I got 15 that I like a lot. Um, and so I landed around these five as definite, like top contenders, but um, unclear where they would land tomorrow, for, so to speak. So the first of these is uh, Me Hansen Loves One Fine Morning. Not going to talk about it later. All right. I wasn't sure. I know no, you were not. No. Yeah. Sorry. No, we're not. Um, I, uh, as long as any listener who's paid attention to me long enough knows that I'm a big, big fan of Mia Henson Love. Uh, I think the first time I had one of her films on my top 10 was Eden in 2014. Um, but I had already seen by that point Goodbye First Love. And up until, up through Bergman Island, which was, I think, my second favorite film of last year, um, I just, thought she kept bettering herself every time i can't state as definitively that that is true at this point um but that isn't any mark against one fine morning it's just she had already reached pretty considerable heights by this point that um to continue to top them would be an unreasonable expectation (laughs) um this uh finds her in very familiar territory it's semi-autobiographical story of a woman at a sort of crossroads um the woman here is played by lisa du uh who um i guess before i lavish praise on her i'll just describe the circumstances of her character's life um she is a single mother her husband died it sounds like pretty soon after she would have given birth to their um young shoot son right <laughs> i don't know why i'm suddenly tripped up by this very key detail um no, is it i thought it was a daughter but it's probably a daughter and i'm just like an idiot um I'm looking it up. Yep, daughter. I'm a fool. Um, her young daughter. Um, 
So there's a sense in which they didn't really have the life that they planned on having together. And she's kind of shut herself off uh, romantically. She even says as much to a friend. Um, meantime, she's caring for her elderly father, played by Pascal Gregory, um, who is uh, struggling with the estate outright's dementia. Or am I just reading into it? No, they don't call it that. Yeah, it's something but, yeah. like that. He's losing his mental faculties, less able to take care of himself, um, has a very excellent apartment into which I would move tomorrow if given the opportunity. Just filled with books um, yeah. from his, his life as a professor and um, it clearly has not only a strong sense of himself and his uh, place in life, but is well-respected in the community and um is in a sense like a lot of people's shining light of like where they could eventually reach. And so all of them, her, the rest of their family and himself continuing to like prop him up as that kind of like renowned figure is very important to all of them and a key part of his own identity. And uh, Gregor's performance as he continues to lose that is very moving and very well done. In addition to all that, um, she unexpectedly meets a, uh, close friend for her late husband's um, and sort of a groupie mutual friend, but we understand they kind of fell out of touch after her husband passed, um, played by Melville Poupon, um, who was in uh, Mia Henson Loves Things to Come um, and has been a ton of films, and, but which has, who has an excellent showcase here as um, a growing romantic interest of hers, um, but who is himself married. And even though he says it's on the rocks, you never really know until you start hitting those rocks hard, how much he'd be willing to give up um, in order to be with even someone as beautiful as Leah Sadu. Come now, fella, you have this opportunity. <laughs> um, Leah Sadu uh, is someone that I've always liked, um, but who I think after France really emerged as a fully fledged like artist and who now I am very desperate to see every new performance of hers and really kind of desperate to go back and see as many older films as I can of hers to see um, the signs of, I think the actress she would become. Um, she always had like a strong sense of vulnerability and obviously is very striking on screen, but I think she just becomes so much more finely honed in her dramatic uh, skill set in how she brings out the narrative of the film in a scene to scene basis um, and how she can build an overarching arc for her character to employ. And I, I, this, I talked about this on the AFI episode, but the scene in which she's riding a bus and things are kind of like uncertain with Melville Popold. She doesn't really know which way the uh, relationship is going to go. And she gets a text from him saying how much he misses her and wants to see her. And at first she's just so filled with joy. And then it clearly, it, this is all in her expression. It clearly reminds her of the distance that she feels from him and the uncertainty of her situation. She half breaks down into tears um, and Hanson Love is a strong enough director to trust that the actress can carry that moment completely on her face. And that can be such a striking scene. Um, it, you know, I don't think any clip bears its weight under being out of context, but it's a, one that the film's distributor, Sony Pictures Classics, has shared on their social media with good reason. Um, there's enough in there to want to hook anybody. Um, this is kind of similar structural territory that Hanson Love did in Things to Come and in uh, Goodbye First Love and more aggressively in Eden, which takes place over 20 years, where the scenes are very short, but seem to draw out a lot. She's working again with editor Marianne Monnier, who she's done all her films with, 
Um, and the two of them have really honed a way to build a story around these small moments that add up to uh, really moving, overarching um, emotional sense. And at, at first, where the film ends up almost felt like too convenient and too pat. But the more I kind of think about those that final sequence, the more nuance and expression and understanding and compassion I find in it. Um, so this, that's why this film could easily like be my number one tomorrow is that I just keep thinking about and keep returning to it and can't wait to see it again. Um, cause I'm very, very high on it. Yeah, I was high on it too. Um, uh, as far as me handsome Love or whatever you say, I know. um, I think you have a better memory for your past top tens than I do. Um, I think I know Bergman Island was in my top 10 last year and I think things to come was in my top 10. I think that's it. Cause Maya didn't never got released here. Oh yeah. But it also didn't really hit with me. Right. I also remember not vibing with goodbye first love, but I've changed a lot in the over yeah. a decade since I saw that. Um, uh, yeah. You uh, also play around with your top 10 more than I do. I <laughs> feel like that's a slippery slope. If I start doing that, I mean, I do it a little bit, but I, I'm always worried that I'm going to like throw everything out and have to start all over. And I don't know. Um, yeah. As far as Leah to do, I've also been a fan for a long time. Now I know you're a somewhat recent, somewhat convert to the films of Benoit Jaco. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, not just because of his recent films. It's not like a uh, diary chambermaid or whatever. turned me around on him. Um, it was because no, I did you see diary chambermaid? Uh, yes, I did. Um, I liked it all right. But but she's also in Fare, Farewell, My Queen, which to me is the second best Jaco movie after A Single Girl. Oh, wow. Um, I would not go that far. But um, yeah, I do like her in that. Uh, yeah. What's your... Well, obviously, we both agree on A Single Girl. What's the next yeah. best Jaco movie? Uh, let me pull up his filmography. I think it'd be another one of the earlier ones. Um oh, you do oh. School of Flesh? Is that him? No, I haven't... I, well, I saw I haven't seen it. Um what the hell is the name of that movie? Uh, bu- 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 he did do the School of Flesh, though. Okay. Um, yeah, that's a good one. I think it's called The Disenchanted. I have a list of his titles because they're on French. Uh, I think it's called The Disenchanted in English. Um, that would be my number two for sure. That's really okay. I, I should I should check that one out. Um, uh, yeah, Cohen Media put out a nice three pack of his movies that includes a single girl. And so that was kind of my introduction to him. Um, it really, well, I, I first streaming a single girl on Canopy because, hello, got to get that shit for free. But then I bought that three pack <laughs> and watched the other two movies. Um, but as as you know, I, I'm pretty big on, well, it doesn't have his last two movies even on this filmography. What could the Wikipedia these days? Um, but the one we were just talking about, Susanna. Susanna Andler. Susanna Andler. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, that would probably be my number three, that or Keep It Quiet, um, which is also one of the movies in that Cohen three-pack. But yeah, I, I want to see more and more of his movies. I don't know how we keep wandering in to talk about Benoit Jaco like every third episode, but... but Because I've been a fan since... I guess since stumbling across a single girl in my college... like Or the video store I worked at in college had a, just a foreign film section, and I think I picked up the... Uh, uh, a single girl VHS on a whim and loved mm. it and then watched school of flesh and then started seeing his stuff when it, when it came out. Um, uh, including we haven't talked about three hearts, which is, I still haven't seen it. It's nuts. Yeah. I'll uh, bet. 
I don't know if you know the story of Three Hearts or if you have time for the story of Three Hearts, but it's I don't a- know. Do I? <laughs> okay. Guy goes to a guy who lives in Paris goes is sent on a work trip to uh, he works at a bank, the bank outpost in a small town, and he meets this woman uh, played by Charlotte Gainsbourg, and they have this wonderful night together and they do the, like the serendipity thing. She's like, let's not exchange information. If we still feel like this in two weeks, I'll be in Paris, meet me by the Louvre or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he plans on doing it, but he has a heart attack. And then, so then he gets, he, once he recovers, he keeps convincing his boss to send him back to this town. And he keeps going these work trips to this <laughs> town to try and find this woman again. And he can't find her. But over the course of the time, he ends up moving there full time, working at the bank. He meets and falls in love with another woman. And he goes to her house to meet her family and guess who her sister is. <laughs> all right. Isn't that a great plot? That's a great plot. Yeah. Uh, all right. That's a good back. Uh, Benoit code break. Uh, and now we're on to my number five which is uh, Martin Sims, the African desperate, which is a, uh, an, uh, an all in all in one night or all in 24 hours type of movie that um, starts with a, uh, a woman played by diamond stingily. It's a great name. I was going to say, um, come on. That's yeah, the, character's right name, there. the character's name is palace, which is also a great name, but the yeah. actress is diamond stingily. Um, uh, she is graduating from uh, she's getting her master's in fine arts. The last step is, I, I don't know anything about masters of fine arts, but <laughs> in the movie, the last step is that she has to get her like project, like sort of reviewed by uh, a, a board. And then they uh, grant her, her mastership or whatever. Um, and so the movie opens with that scene. It's very funny and very uncomfortable. She's a black woman. None of the, um, uh, uh, board are black and um, they are uh, critiquing her work in ways that uh, feels maybe tone deaf or maybe like intentionally antagonistic. Um, uh, but that's just how the movie starts. And but but it gets you it gives you a sense of how ready she is to be done. She's got a master's fine arts. She is going, she has a, we find out she has a flight back to Chicago the next day. She's going home. This is like an upstate New York. Um, uh, and she keeps running into other people and you see like these relationships that, that she has with the other people at the school. Uh, some are, some are kind of close and some are like, uh, obviously very antagonistic or whatever, but everyone keeps inviting her to the party that night. And she mm. keeps insisting, I'm not going to the party. I'm going to leave tomorrow. I'm done with these people. I'm not going to the party. You'll never guess where she ends up. <laughs> um, is it, is it that she says, I would never in a million years go to that party and smash cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, not quite that, but uh, okay. yeah, she, um, uh, she does end up at the party. It turns into a wild, night of uh i say wild wild and that she gets really fucked up but it's not like uh you know i don't know detroit rock city i don't know why i'm thinking of that example <laughs> she doesn't go on an adventure is what i'm saying uh she just gets really fucked up and has a lot of different encounters with a lot of different uh different people and all the while like there's um 
uh, stylistically, the movie uh, has these little flourishes where like um, a she'll like hear as a black woman hear like a microaggression and like a like a a meme will like pop up in the corner mm-hmm. of the screen but like so quick that you almost don't have time <laughs> to be like what are the, what was that meme but like this is clearly like her internal reaction to right. uh, the, how she's being talked to um but uh anyway i've described a lot of things that happen uh Overall, I'm just I'm first off I'm a sucker for that like one crazy night type of sure. uh, storytelling. Um, the fact that Martine Sims, who I don't think has made a feature before, maybe I'm an idiot. Um, I think she's made a bunch of shorts, but I think this is her first feature length film. That looks um, to be the case. Yeah, she um, does not seem interested I, even though I, I like i said this all in one night thing there's a plen there's, there are plenty of movies that are a member of that genre or or that category but she doesn't seem to be beholden to any of those she doesn't seem mm. to be trying to like make she's not like breaking her way into indie film by making something that's a crowd pleaser this is actually often a very challenging film with a very challenging uh difficult to like uh lead character but also sometimes very easy to like lead character um and uh these you know i talk about these things like microaggressions and stuff uh the movie doesn't put characters in these boxes it doesn't like say like uh oh that that woman like said something that was maybe a little bit racist therefore she has been revealed to be a bad person no this is like another student and like I don't know if you're a black woman who hangs around mostly white people, you probably get like, (laughs) you probably hear some like unintentionally really cringy, cringy shit all the time. And you just have to like, you know, exist in this world. So I I think the, the, the movie is exciting and never pat. Um, And often quite funny. And again, maybe not quite to the point of the woman from, uh, uh, I already forgot her name from return to soul, but um I'm not sh- uh, Diamond Stingley is also making her debut as an actor uh, in this, and and she's great. Yeah, very exciting movie. Okay, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, I have no smart comment to say other than I really wish I've seen it, and it is on movie, which I am a subscriber to. So perhaps I will get around to it. Well, now it's got it'll be five years, right? That's your rule. Yeah. Well, no, you always say it's a rule. It's just a tendency. <laughs> it's just that I like. I'm just sick of every year, but this year I particularly didn't catch up on as many movies as I would have liked to. So you never know. All right. Uh, my number All right, four. I, real quick. It is my yeah. promise to Battleship Retention listeners that the next four movies I name you have heard of. <laughs> well, they've absolutely heard of my number four, which I'm going to break my little streak of French female filmmakers with, of course, Michael Bay's Ambulance, um, which, yes, it has absolutely been in contention for the number one spot as as long as since i've seen it um i i don't know i I, this is one that i feel like i've talked about a ton of the podcast and which now feels absurd to summarize my feelings on but what the hell um so uh ambulance is about two brothers played by yaya abdul mateen the second and Jake Gyllenhaal, who uh you might recognize are indeed uh uh, one is a black man one is a white man uh 
people make some jokes about that and uh the characters toss them off and um abdul mateen is a former soldier who is trying to get uh the army to pony up for not pony up they're trying to get his insurance his insurance through the va to pay for some surgery his wife needs um for is it a specified disease or just like a movie disease i feel like it's just I a movie remember. disease yeah, it might yeah just be- <laughs> i think it's just a movie disease um but they're you know as one might know from experiences with any insurance company uh they're not too forthcoming with that uh, so he heads over to try to borrow some money from his brother, Jake Gyllenhaal, um, who unbeknownst to him is literally about to leave to go rob a bank, um, which is a great place to start a movie. You know, mm-hmm. I, I thought from the kind of the vague setup of the movie that you'd get like a scene of Jake Gyllenhaal kind of t- passing off and then he'd get a phone call a couple days later. No, that day he's like, you want some money? I can get you c- several million dollars today if you want to come rob this bank with us. Um, and sure enough, um, Abdul Mateen goes with him on that bank robbery. Uh, very refreshingly, the robbery itself is very quickly skipped past. I loved the cut into the interior of the bank where they already have taken the hostage. You don't have to go through the whole scene of like imitating heat here to like <laughs> have people lay down the floor and tell them that the money's not really theirs or whatever. No, they skip right to, they've already taken the bank hostage. Um, and uh, in comes a police officer who uh, has been meaning to ask a teller out. And that really upends their whole game. One thing leads to another. And Abdomatin shoots that police officer in a near fatal way. Fortunately, nearby, uh, Isa Gonzalez, EMT extraordinaire, best in the business, but with a rocky personal life ain't that always the way um <laughs> is cruising by and hears the distress call races onto the scene gets past the security um only to get quickly taken hostage by uh the two brothers um who need a way out recognize the ambulance is a good way to get there um and take the cop along with them as a sort of um hostage in the process uh and bring Isaac Gonzalez with them as well in order to uh, care for that cop. Um, or, you know, the cop's already in the ambulance by the time they take a hold of it, but they recognize a good opportunity when they have it um, because they know they can get by police barricade if they have a cop with them. And indeed, the cop becomes essential to their continued survival as many different authority figures make clear that they would just as soon destroy the ambulance, uh, but for the life of the cop. And so... Not only is it a rip-roaring, thrill-a-minute ride that takes this premise of just constant car chase movie over that runs for... I mean, by the time they're running in the car chase, it's probably like an hour, 45 minutes of constant car chase, but it's a two-hour-plus movie that is just a constant action showcase. Mm-hmm. Um, not only is it just thrilling in that, and Michael Bay is utilizing drone cameras in a way that no mainstream film is daring to take on uh, you know, usually you have to go to YouTube demos to get this kind of thrill. Uh, no bays throwing it all out there and letting it ride. So not only you get all that, but I think it's also pretty sharply political film in how far the state will go a to protect the life of a single cop where it's like completely disinterested in the lives of anyone else they might encounter that day. Um, in the course of the car chase, they'll really get as dangerous as they need to in order to continue mm-hmm. to, keep this cop barely alive. Um, but also how much expense they'll unleash um, 
on somebody rather than just pay for his goddamn medical bills um to unleash <laughs> a freaking army on him and the film is you know bay kind of has that kind of pushball similar to james cameron of like admiring military technology but also damning the way it's just infiltrated the streets um and bay's continued alliance as much as he gets tagged with kind of being a rah-rah america guy what you see in the course of his film is really uh I don't know if I'd call it a deep concern with, but at least an interesting concern with the way the state just kind of churns through people and men, especially in the line of duty. I mean, you can even extrapolate this out to something as ridiculous as the rock and Armageddon, you know, the rocks about guys who were in the army and got shoved to the side and who are now taking over um, a prison. Uh, Armageddon is about um, oil drillers who are just being churned through by the state in order to save the world this comes up again and again and again throughout mm. the course of his movies um 13 hours which kind of got you know unfairly tagged as like reactionary political shit because it's about benghazi centrally it's about the fact that the guys on the ground have no course over their command and nothing to do with the decisions that are being made but have to live with the consequences of them and that's really what amethyst is about it, it's about um the state being unconcerned with what it's done to this guy, but deeply concerned with what he's going to do in response and is willing to waste far more in taxpayer money than what he stole in order to right that wrong. And that's really just how America operates is it will expend undue energy and millions and billions of dollars in order to punish people, but almost nothing in order to keep them afloat in life. Um, and you see this in the way that Michael Bay highlights the homeless encampments, and um just the destitution of the la streets which someone like abdul mateen is seconds away from if he makes or if he continues to not be able to find a way to keep his family afloat um and so yeah it's a really complex interesting fascinating film that is also just a blast to watch and uh really i've seen it now a couple of times and loved it even more the second time um really really impressed with it even by decades now of loving michael bay he continues to surprise me yeah you um you mentioned the um uh inclusion of homeless encampments and and, and tents because that's uh, i'm glad you mentioned it because that's something that i uh really took away from the movie as a as a portrait of uh what los angeles's downtown looks like right now not um not a uh um not a projection of what it looks like or, or someone's um, so, or, or someone's idea to do an artist rendering of what it looks like. Yeah. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of um, documentary to ambulance um, uh, and the, you know, shooting in Los Angeles as it looks now, I mentioned in my review that um, the, the sixth street bridge, which is since opened is, uh, one of those drones flies uh right along the construction of the of the new six street yeah. bridge which was sort of the old one was torn down against you know preservationists protests uh there's also a whole part with the um snipers up on the roof of the la times building which is um i think uh makes me uh think of the fact that pretty soon that that viewpoint is not going to be that view is not going to exist because the people who bought the LA Times building are building like attaching big huge high rises to the side of it. Um, uh, yeah, it was. A, I liked it for all the reasons you 
did and some reasons you um said i hadn't even thought about but uh i also just really liked it as an la movie yeah absolutely um, speaking of la movies we're on to my number four which i think was your underrated and that's damien chazelle's babylon excellent uh which i have now seen three times <laughs> I, I saw it once in the theater with you which was your second time as yeah. i recall uh and then when it since it came to paramount plus um just over a week ago i've watched it two more times um uh it feel in some ways it feels like a departure but as we were talking about the real damien chazelle isn't I don't, like the picture that people who don't like him have of him isn't already wasn't borne out by yeah. his movies necessarily but this one definitely seems to go in a different direction because if you see uh, i still haven't seen guy and madeline right that's his first yeah. um but tyler and i have talked about like whiplash la la land and first man all being about people who are so dedicated to what they want to do that uh they will cast aside all of their like personal relationships and uh and 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 whatnot even or pieces of themselves even even for hurts yeah yeah um in a sense and so the first time maybe the first couple times i watched babylon i thought like oh yeah there's not like that thing isn't really in there but um then i started to see the, well, this I, okay, I started to actually see the connection in something that I saw in the movie the first time. The big uh, the the movie is more uh, Manny Torres is the character Diego Cal, Diego Calva. If I had to pick one character to be the lead, I would probably pick him. Yeah, but um, the most tragic story in the movie is Brad Pitt as Jack Conrad. Is that the character's name? That feels right. Uh, yeah, um, who has in a sense has that dedication that ambition but what happens over the course of the movie which takes place epilogue notwithstanding takes place over the course of about five or six years i think yeah um what uh what we see he has this desire to make the movies to bring more respect to the movies um to get people to stop thinking of them as low art as his like fourth or fifth wife. <laughs> uh, I mean, he, that's assuming the wife we see at the start is the first wife which probably isn't <laughs> right yeah that's true um uh yeah uh so anyway he he has this goal and by the end of the movie he has kind of seen it achieved but at the expense of his own career mm-hmm. um so I, maybe that's the pieces of yourself of themselves thing. Like the, that there are people who are going to get churned through, uh, as the art form progresses, you know, this is the, um, to me, this is obviously the point of that montage at the end. Some people who I feel might be, uh, just cinematically illiterate. Seem I know. To, <laughs> seems like almost pointedly missing the point. Yeah. Um the the point is we've just seen in the course of like I said 5 6 years in the film industry we've seen multiple careers blossom and then be ruined. We've seen people die 
making movies and that you know an extra gets run through yeah. with a prop spear uh a cameraman suffocates in the in, in the booth there's there's more like we've seen all of this uh uh get churned through and at the end when manny is seeing the entire next 75 <laughs> years of cinema in front of him he's seeing all of these advances and the implication to me is that each one of these has a similar body count. Yeah. Um, and uh, either like literal body count, like Babylon has a surprisingly high body count <laughs> for the movie than it is, um, but like careers as well um, being expendable. Uh, every, every one of those, but it's still not a tragedy. He's still moved by it by the end. You yeah. know, he, he starts crying looking down by the end he's got tears in his eyes and he's looking up he still is looking the 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 movies progress the art form progresses it doesn't bring everyone with it and that's awful but uh it's also great for the people who are watching the movies yeah I guess. what are you gonna do it's still uh, singing in the rain <laughs> yeah um i also uh uh, I think that and that's that's why I something I thought of as a character quirk I think of of Damien Chazelle the first time I watched that actually came to be came to see more uh, in keeping with that description that I I thought like oh he's like he's doing the, like showing like opening with an elephant shitting on people and, like I said <laughs> people die and people puke and like it's a movie that is so gross and I was like. Oh, he's like, he's de-romanticizing, but also because he's Damien Chazelle, he can't help but romanticize a little too. And I thought of that as just an idiosyncrasy of him. The more I think about it, the more like, no, that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah, that's, that's the central that's concern. Of, yeah, that's that's a, a a part of the movie. Um, look, I think um, I was going to make some like grand. Uh, uh, unequivocal statement, but that's not who I am. I'm not, I don't know. I'm not John Marie Straub. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just looking at, at that book that I read is still right yeah, yeah. Um So I'll say maybe not all great works of art, but many of my favorite works of art, be they movies or albums or whatever, are a little bit embarrassing. Sure. <laughs> you know, because if you're trying too hard not to be embarrassing, Christopher Nolan, um, <laughs> then you're closing off a part of yourself, which is uh, malpractice as an artist. You're supposed to be putting yourself out there. Um, and so there's a lot of things that you could make fun of about Babylon and could call cringe. And there are even things in the movie that don't work at all for me. Um, but uh, um, it's all too passionate and uh beautifully executed and also justin herbert's score is so fucking good i've listened yeah. to that even more than i've watched oh yeah movie. yeah we, julie and i have it on pretty constant rotation um yeah. and yeah it's strange that he's only done the score for damien chazelle movies it's like he must be insanely in demand but fortunately he just like spends those two or three years just working on damien chazelle movies yeah. and produces well, these incredible scores I was at um, the HCA awards um, uh, and during the earlier part, it was like 
a one mini award show and then a big award show. The mini awards had the more like creative arts, technical below the line people. And Justin Herbert's won uh, nice. the first score at that. And in his speech, he talked about, he was being kind of humble, basically saying like, I'm glad I get all this attention, but you guys have no idea how involved Damien Chazelle is mm. in the music. So um, maybe that's just who he works with because maybe if he were working on his own, he wouldn't be what we know of. I mean, maybe he'd be great in a, in a different way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, maybe a lot of what we're uh, hearing is, is Damien Chazelle as well. Um, I also noticed, I, I noticed this the first time I watched it, but it uh, keeps coming up every time I watched it. Speaking of the score, um, Justin Herbert is intentionally quoting himself by right. revisiting the melody of someone in the crowd from La La Land, which at first felt like kind of a joke because that's a song about like how banal it is, uh, like to hope you get discovered at a Hollywood party, and yet that's literally how Marco Robbie's character right. <laughs> starts her career is getting discovered. So at first it seemed like a joke, but it, it becomes sadder I think every time. Um, uh that that sort of uh, melody comes back and i i think it might be because uh of what i'm saying if 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 something as happenstance and arbitrary as someone get discovered getting their career made by dancing at a party can happen you know the opposite could happen careers could be unmade yeah, due to arbitrary arbitrary things, which we see happen in the movie. I've gone on way too long about Babylon. I probably won't go on this long about any other movie, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> uh, I really loved it. Yeah, I do want to say a couple things about it. Um, yeah. The first is the, about that kind of yeah, central push and pull Damien Chazelle has with like admiring the thing that he's making movies about while also being like, well, this is kind of strange, is it? Um, I wasn't like the biggest fan of Whiplash. It's definitely my least favorite of Chazelle's movies, but I do think that like ending moment of the two of them, like looking at each other and smiling is like the key thing. And such as, I mean, it's a really sharp way to end the movie and send always sends the audience out with a big cheer, but um, it's also like cuts to the core of what he's all about, which is like, this is fucked up, but we're having a hell of a time, aren't we? And like, I, I really admire that he carried that through to first man too, which is like, every freaking movie about space is about how amazing it is to go to space. And the entire movie is about like, this is the stupidest thing that anyone's ever tried to do, but everyone's like so compelled to do it. And by the time that you get to the moon, you're like, well, shit, I can see why. Um, And so, yeah, Babylon has that push and pull throughout it. And it's really, I mean, to me, anyway, I was laughing constantly throughout the movie Mm -hmm. um, and brings all the like sharpness that came to fore in that finale at whiplash and just like constantly turning through these scenes. And because it was on my underrated list, I can be a little petty about it and say like, I don't know how you watch the big, like on the set scene where they're shooting like three movies simultaneously side by side and trying to get the shot in before the sun sets and people are dying and the spears are being thrown. And Margot Robbie's like showing that she can cry on cue. And that assistant director guy is hilariously yelling at everybody. Yeah. PJ Byrne is the actor. He's great. Yeah. So good. I don't know how you watch that scene and aren't just like impressed and in awe of somebody executing at that level with that many distinct components and undoubtedly having to chase the sun themselves in getting the scene across, you know, the scene is in at least in a tiny fraction of what it's about, you know, an act of its own making as well. Um, I don't know how you watch that. I don't know how you watch the um, 
first day of Margot Robbie on set to do a, a sound sync film and aren't just totally enraptured by what they're doing yeah. um, on a pure construction level. Never mind by the time they get to like the underground sex dungeon fight club <laughs> that Toby <laughs> Maguire takes them through. And yeah, it's just, it's a hell of a ride. The other thing, the last thing I want to say about it in terms of like the way people undercut themselves is I think um, Chazelle is really canny about how he deploys um, the Manny character who throughout the course of the film um, denies his nationality, changes his name and tells a black man to put on um, what the hell is that? It's burnt That's cork. Burnt cork. Yeah. In order to make himself darker on screen, the way that Manny keeps chipping away at his own humanity at first in service of his own career and eventually in service of this impossible woman who he's been chasing for that entire career um, is really subtly done and for as extravagant a movie as Babylon is, and is also really smart without like really underscoring that he's doing that that entire time. And it also speaks to Calvin's performance and how well he's executing that and how a lot of the breakdown that he has towards the end of the film is recognizing how much of himself he gave up in order to keep pursuing both of those dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think it's a really exceptional film and one that I'm really glad I saw twice because I, I liked a lot the first time, but I was also like sleepy as hell. And I was just mostly just amazed that it kept me awake because I was sure I was going to pass out <laughs> because I'd like gotten no sleep the night before. And so by the time it's the second time I saw it, I was even more enraptured and even more on board with what it was doing. So yeah, very much uh team Babylon at this point. Um, before we move on to your number three, listeners know we have the BPs. We have a category uh, that Tyler invented called the Bruce McGill and the Insider Award for Best Performance Under 15 Minutes of Screen Time, something like yeah. that. Uh, I, someone I wanted to get on the list but didn't uh, make the nominee. It was a, a real dark horse. No one but me uh, nominated her. But the actress' name is Karina, Karina Fontes, and she plays Jen, the cocktail waitress at the big party at the beginning, oh, who sure. kind of like comes on to Brad Pitt uh, and then is very emotionally honest with him, and it becomes a, a, a moving scene. And then, of course, by the end of the party, they're fucking in the balcony. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the but problem she's with, great. Yeah, yeah. The problem with Babylon is it's nothing but Bruce McGill Award contenders. <laughs> There's <laughs> yeah, so many yeah. people who you could consider. Yeah. Um, All right. Now on to cool. your number three, which I assume we'll either pass on or agree on right now. It's clear to me stars at noon. Yeah. We'll come back to it later. All right. So cool. uh, my number three, um, I'm sad it's not on your list, uh, even though I know you liked it. Um, Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved it, but I got like 15 movies about it, which I all feel <laughs> roughly equal. Yeah. Uh, so this, I mean, this is the movie that I, cause I, could never fully get on board with West Side Story like you did last year, which isn't to say I didn't like it. I'm just saying yeah, like yeah. you were, you were over like the moon for it. All in, yeah, and I um, had maybe certain extra textual like blockades to uh, the movie existing in the first place and all that stuff. <laughs> um, but uh, this is the movie that I had that that reaction to. Um, uh, uh, just the 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 pure filmmaking and and the um uh i don't know there's something about guys like steven spielberg and james cameron um 
and maybe to a certain extent Robert Zemeckis, although I do not like some of his stuff, so maybe that's not a good example. But uh, I like deride certain films for being manipulative, but like all Steven Spielberg does is manipulate oh, yeah. in a way. Uh, but it's it's too beautiful and powerful, and also it's too not uh, regurgitated. You know, maybe that's what I react to more of the manipulated movies as they're just like picking up on stuff other movies have done which sure. of course steven spielberg is doing like all artists you know um all artists borrow and steal from the, the the past and that's that's fine but it feels so of a of a whole when when he does it um and so uh so personal to him or like unique to him at least uh this movie feels personal um not all of his movies feel personal to me um but uh here's another one like with people i think I must be intentionally misreading the end of Babylon. <laughs> There's a lot of like power of the movies talk about the Fablemans. And I feel yeah. like that's a very superficial read of the movie. Big time. To me, the movie is about, <laughs> you know, it's not a very humble thing for Steven Spielberg to make, but it's about the pain and torment of being preternaturally talented like incomprehensibly talented at something um, in a place where you aren't able to pursue that, you know, like, I would say not only that, but like that, the thing you're talented at, nobody takes seriously. And right, like, yeah. this is before there were popularized the idea of even film school, you know, it's yeah. the movies were purely entertainment and like everybody looks down on him for spending this much time on it. Yeah. Yeah, that um, you saying it like that uh, reminds me of Whiplash because you were just talking about Whiplash. But there's a part in that movie, and I can't really remember if it's Miles Teller's like cousin or something, okay. who, like is a starting football player, but for like a Division two or three college, and he gets more praise than Miles Teller gets for being in this jazz band because people don't understand what an accomplishment, what an honor it is yeah. for Miles Teller. So yeah. Um, uh, I've yeah I've been talking shit about Whiplash for uh, years now, but maybe there's <laughs> maybe there's more to it than than I remember. Uh, so yeah, um, what was I saying? So the Fablemans is a movie about uh, um, yeah that 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 talent uh, and the um, oh, I got so like off base. I was like on a roll, and then I got myself off base with the Whiplash shit. That's my fault. <laughs> um, so, what was I saying about uh, the 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 talent of of him? I don't know. I, I can't torment of being um, uh, unusually talented at a young age, where you can't get it out and express it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Really. That's what I was going to say. Is that some of that pain and torment is internal? Like when mm -hmm. you know, one of the um, best scenes in the movie. Another another Bruce McGill nominee, by the way, Judd, Judd Hirsch. Sure. Um, when he says like um he's in the bedroom and he says like of course you love your family but he points like the editing equipment he's like but this i think you love a little bit more and he uh sammy like denies that you yeah. know but i think he spielberg knows and i think sammy knows that judge hirsch is right and that's a big part of the torment of of the movie you know that um uh his sister um oh what's the actress's name Rafi. Anyway, um, after 
their parents uh have like tell them that they're getting divorced and everything um he goes back into his room and starts working again yeah and uh his sister come in, comes in and is like how can you how can you do this right now um and that's another sort of accusation uh the movie's also very funny um, oh yeah uh gabriel labelle is that his name yeah uh is fantastic this this is another one that i've seen twice um i did that a lot this this uh this year um julia butters is the actress oh yeah from once upon a time in hollywood anyway um and from that uh i think you should leave sketch uh anyway um gabriel labelle is fantastic the the scene that that i have that's really stood out to me as both funny but really uh insightful um about steven spielberg being aware of what it is that he does when sammy is directing the his war his mm-hmm. like war picture and he's trying to get this like sort of dumb jock guy to play like haunted or tortured or regretful about what he's he's done he starts playing on his emotions you know and there's a moment when the jock kind of like feeling emotional like sniffs and wipes his nose and sammy mirrors it does the same thing like (laughs) at the same moment and that's like a psychological insight into what it takes to like direct actors yeah um that really has stood out stood out to me both times uh yeah i don't know what what else do you have to say about the fablements i know it didn't quite yeah but it was definitely in the the top 15 to 20 range um i only left it off my honorable mentions because i talked about it recently on a few other episodes uh obviously praising chloe east um discovery of the year yeah um no i mean the the other things that stood out to me were it being a sharp reflection of ai which is my favorite spielberg movie in terms of the mother-son relationship and Mm. um the bind that that has clearly held on spielberg and can hold on a lot of people um which uh ai i think in both instances really is, is tragic in unexpected ways um and to note that i was really impressed that he acknowledged in a subtle way the lack of sex in his films um at one point one of his sisters like teased him from never making movies with girls in them um (laughs) which i feel like has to be the result of uh tony kushner like just needling spielberg about that in the course of them writing the screenplay together um (laughs) and trying to tease out like what that's all about and um you know there's some other subtle ways in which the film kind of confronts that head on um and so it's just stuff like that that there's a degree of vulnerability that i wasn't expecting even from spielberg like making his life story you know at this point he's one of the most renowned filmmakers of all time and he could easily do a pure nostalgia piece but that he took that premise and made it so cuttingly personal um was really brave of him and just the pure like minute to minute filmmaking is so good and in ways that like i don't even think you can really totally appreciate certainly on one viewing because like there was a moment that somebody pointed out had to point out to me on twitter that i didn't pick up on the first time where um after he screens the film at like the prom um the kind of jock guy that he's kind of like propped up um has been out with his girlfriend he's got prom with another girl and so Josh, I've been before. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, who's kind of like the 
sort of star of this kind of senior break film that he made um so this jock guy's like on the outs with his girlfriend at the prom with another girl and so the other girl like runs up to him admiringly and the that shot starts slightly out of focus and then the main girlfriend comes in from the back and we realize that's actually the focus of the shot so they had set the focus of that shot to be on a girl who is in the shot at the beginning but who comes to the fore and that's like that's the emotional story of that shot and he and Janusz Kaminski have just like an unparalleled ability with the camera that, yeah, it co- it's constantly informing the storytelling, but not in a showy way, even though they can do very uh, glamorous shots as well. They're doing things uh, in ways that can also be very subtle. And David is currently futzing with his headphones and I'm trying to figure out if he can hear me talking, but I think he's moving on to another pair in order to continue the podcast because I suspect his earbuds ran out of battery. And this is why listeners, you should never buy or never count on in a podcasting environment. Um, your uh, Bluetooth battery operated earbuds because a wire will, will always save you. Um, uh, Bluetooth. It's, it's not your friend. It's, it's not for you. Um, what else about the Fableman's genie Berlin is in it very briefly. We'd love to see her. We didn't really talk about, um michelle williams and paul dano who are the oscar nominated um or wait i think paul dano missed the nomination because the academy seems to hate him um but they're uh excellent as always and michelle williams just continues to unveil more and more about uh herself in each role just when i think i have her pigeonholed she brings out just a little bit extra um david can you now hear me Yes, sorry, I didn't know. I didn't know if you were able to vamp through all of that. Oh, I, I vamped a little bit by making fun of you for relying on AirPods, which I do for everybody who uh, foolishly cast their lot with the uh, wireless, battery-powered accoutrement. Yeah, well, you know what I've switched back to tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com AirPods is what I should have been with. Yeah, but, uh, a lot more reliable. Yeah, I guess our um, my yeah my AirPod my AirPods uh, crapped out. Uh, the battery anyway, just died i mentioned uh paul dan and michelle williams because we didn't really talk about okay. them uh yeah all right i think I covered um it. yeah so what's your number two movie of the year 2022 uh yeah my number two is audrey dewan's happening um which was a, a film that was in my, was my number one at the halfway point in the past year and kept kind of floating around in different spots throughout the course of me kind of assembling this list um but which kind of really reasserted itself the more I was kind of thinking of it. Although again, the order of this top five, especially could change tonight. If I were to really put some more thought into it, um, this is an adaptation of Annie, uh, Ernau's, uh, novel by the same name, which is reportedly, uh, quite autobiographical. I did get it around to seeing her film, the super eight years and quite liked it. Okay. Um, so uh, that's a, a side point to this, but yeah, she is a continuing artist and what first time filmmaker now with her film this year. Um, so kudos to her there. Um, and this is also Audrey Dewan's first film as that happens. Um, so yeah, this is about a young woman who's in college clearly uh, is quite gifted in her department. Um, she's an English major and uh one of the first introductions we get to her is um her partaking in class where she's i believe passing notes or somewhat distracted but uh the professor calls on her and she still nails the answer first try what an ace um so she clearly has a prominent promising career ahead of her uh 
at which time she discovers that she is pregnant. And the film takes place in or around 1960, maybe generally the early 1960s, I can't remember exactly, um, when abortion is illegal in much of the world and indeed in France. Um, and unlike most films about abortion, it doesn't assume that a young woman knows what to do in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, not that the you know cast aspersions at uh, never really, sometimes always, or four months, three weeks, and two days, both of which I think are subject to fine films. Um, but those are about kind of an established process. This is about a young woman who has zero idea what to do in this situation um, and who through much of the film seems to be having the reaction that most young people have in unimaginable situations or even some difficult situations, which is just trying to deny that it's happening altogether and hoping it will just take care of itself. And the film keeps telling us through title cards how far along she is and which kind of underscores how desperate her situation is growing, not only to find some solution to it, but uh, in if nothing else, to hide it from people around her. Um, not only that she's seeking said solution, which again is illegal, but that she's pregnant at all um, puts her in a vulnerable spot. And so by the time she figures out that she needs something to do it, needs to do something about it, she doesn't really know who to turn to. Um, the friends that she admits it to instantly cast her aside because even being associated with someone performing an abortion is a criminal offense, um, let alone carrying it out yourself, um, let alone helping arrange it. Um, and so the doctors, she goes to several doctors, um, aren't willing to help her one in fact worsens her situation because uh he essentially gives her a drug that he tells her will abort the fetus but actually strengthens the fetus um because he doesn't want her to try anything herself that might ruin uh the pregnancy um so you can tell bit by bit the ways the many ways in which society both socially and structurally is positioned against her and how how completely vulnerable and how cast out she is. Meanwhile, her body is undergoing a massive change and which has its own series of threats. I think unlike most abortion movies, this acknowledges that there is a biological medical component to being pregnant. And there's times at which it feels like a body horror movie that she's just like so disgusted by what's happening to her and so fearful of the results of that. Um, that it, I mean, I was genuinely queasy while watching it. Not that it takes much to make me queasy in a hardcore medical drama because I'm uh, a weak, weak person. But um, this uh, brought me back to some high school feelings in health class that I had not felt at the movies in some time. Um, and uh, by the time she finally gets to, you know, not that it's much of a spoiler to say that she gets to the point where she can uh, achieve an abortion, you realize just how trying a physical, emotional, mental experience it has been and how much more is still to go. The procedure itself is uh, beyond a grotesque, but pointedly so to underscore what uh, women at this time have to go through. And um, sadly, once again, in America and many places throughout the world are having to go through once again um, in order to achieve some degree of uh, bodily autonomy. Um, so yeah, really impressive first film by Audrey Dewan. She's apparently making a film coming up with Lisa Du, and I cannot wait to see it. Because um, yeah, this was an exceptional experience. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot to mention too that despite oh, okay. the period setting, um, the film has zero like nostalgic adornment. Um, it's not like kind of bright colors, poppy music kind of thing. It's filmed as though this were all taking place right now. 
um, and the period adornment, you know, the fact that they handwrite more things than we do now or the clothes that they wear are just facts of the case. It's not like looking back at this wonderful time to be alive. It's taking a very sharp, critical eye of that time. All right. So we're on to my number two, which I'm predicting is also your number one. All right. Uh, is it um, uh, Alice Diop's Saint-Omer? It is. <laughs> All right. So we're talking about it. It's a, it's a double whammy. Um, so this is... Um, uh, there's a lot of Diop's, by the way. I know. I don't, there must be a common I don't think they're related in, because, yeah, they must just be common. Yeah, because there's Maddie Diop who made Atlantics, right? Yeah. And she is related and, to um, the guy who made Tukibuki, whose name is Diop, but I'm forgetting his first name. Maddie Diop, by the way, also in Both Sides of the Blade. Oh. Oh, wow. Um, Very brief scene. Okay, yeah, I don't remember that. Uh, but this is Alice Diop. And then there's a movie, Nanny, which stars an actress named Anna Diop, I think. Oh, I missed and, that. Yeah. And I don't think any of these three women are related. It must just be a very <laughs> common name in, in Senegal. Anyway, uh, or among Senegalese uh, French people. Yeah. Anyway, that's a weird way to start the discussion. Uh, Saint-Omer um, is Alice Diop's first non-documentary. I haven't seen any of her documentaries. But, Same. Um, uh, I think, um, yeah, this was, if you... I don't know if you recall, because I know you didn't, you don't do TIFF, but there were a lot of problems with the press, like ticket reserve system this year. So I, I hear that every year. <laughs> no, I mean, this was like really bad. Okay. So I didn't get to see a lot of the stuff I initially had planned to see in some ways that bummed me out. Cause I like still haven't seen how to blow up a pipeline, which I really mm. wanted to see uh, in some ways that worked out very well. So in this case, St. Tamir, I didn't know anything about the, um, uh, LSD up or her previous films, but I think it was the film stage that had done like a uh, stuff to look forward to, like mm -hmm. you know most anticipated movies at TIFF, and this and Saint Omer was on there, and so I uh, uh, got a ticket to it, and I'm so glad I did. Uh, it's so I guess sort of semi autobiographical, semi inspired yeah. by true events uh, where. All right, I have to work on these names. Um, I just had it up. Uh, Kajame, oh no, KJ Kagame uh, is, I guess, the star. She's a literature professor uh, who is also pregnant. Um, yeah. Uh, I should that's that should have been the segue. Speaking of pregnancy, <laughs> um, uh, and partially because she is about to become a first-time mother. Um, and partially because it's just good, like tabloid <laughs> material, <laughs> she becomes obsessed with this ongoing trial of a woman who uh, killed her own daughter. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, killed her own daughter. 15 month old daughter. Yeah. Um, uh, and we eventually learn how she killed, which killed the baby, which is uh, pretty horrifying. And there's a reason there's a lot of uh, attention around this trial, but she like this main character, um, literally relocates herself to go stay in the near the courthouse in the city that the trial's in just so she, she can go attend it every day um and that's mostly what the movie is made up of at least in my memory it's been six months now almost since i saw it um at, at tiff so maybe you've probably seen it more recently but in my memory most of the scenes are made up of the courtroom by far yeah yeah um and it resists every urge to be 
you know, a uh, um, John Grisham style like uh, courtroom drama. It's very, I guess, dry or realistic, but it's also it's not dry because it's about it's a trial about a woman who murdered her child and is blaming it on sorcerers. Yeah. So it's not like it's fascinating, yeah. but the execution is all very naturalistic and realistic and, and it takes its time. Um, but uh, what I think really struck me about it, well, um, LSD ups, maybe as a documentarian, maybe this is where this came from. I really want to see her documentaries now, but uh, her ability to make these just long, scenes of courtroom dialogue as gripping as they are without like much adornment um is uh, i can't even put my finger on how she does it but um uh i was at at no point in this movie was i anywhere near bored for even a second um but the other thing that uh that really stuck out to me is that so uh again heiji kagami is playing a sort of Alice Diop surrogate. Yeah. Alice Diop is a filmmaker. Keiji Kagami is a literature professor, as I recall. Uh, and uh, novelist. And novelist. Okay, so she's... Basically, they're both storytellers. And you can see how she is... She is trying to figure out how she's going to feel or how she does feel about her own pregnancy and the baby that she's going to meet someday. And it's going to be hers someday. She's trying to figure that out through stories, mostly through this woman played by, um, Guslagi Malanga, um, m- maybe performance of the year, possibly, uh, definitely for me. Um, uh, mostly through her story, but then there's also, it really sticks out to me. There's, um, a scene if I remember correctly, she goes back to her hotel room and watches Pasolini's Medea. Uh, I can't remember if it's Medea or the gospel according to Matthew. Well, no, it's Medea because Medea also kills her children. Right, yeah. For yeah, some reason, I had this distinct memory of somebody in a movie recently watching Gospel According to St. Matthew, so I assumed it was that, but anyway, you're probably right. Yeah, um, I mean, I wrote it in my review, so I hope I wasn't... Perfect. <laughs> I hope I wasn't wrong, but also it makes sense because it's Medea kills her children and this woman kills her children, and she's clearly uh, conflicted about um, uh, uh, about having her first child and is looking for um, uh, uh, answers in stories, which is kind of what we are doing watching the movie. I think my little. Uh, um, cutesy turn of phrase in my review had something to do with the character being as much an audience surrogate as it is an LSD up. Surrogate. For sure. Uh, what's it's your number one. What do you have? to Yeah. Say? Um, so I had several points of resistance toward coming into this movie, some of which were misinformed and some of which uh, happened during the course of the first few minutes. So the first of them is that I'm not like the biggest courtroom drama fan. So just like seeing the constantly shared image of Melanda up at the witness stand. Um, and I was just like, I don't, I don't know. And no, then you're the, fact- the choir there. I am also not a courtroom drama fan. Yeah. And then the fact that it was called St. Omer, which I didn't realize is referring to a place, which in the actual place is, uh, uh, has a hyphen between the two, um, which indicates that like, there's a lot of French places that are structured that way. So yeah. I assumed it was about a character named Omer who like, through the, her struggles on the trial was very saintly. And I was like, this 
I don't this I don't not for me but like it kept getting <laughs> praised and like so many people loved it I was like all right fine I'll watch the movie um and then like even in the first like 15 20 minutes kind of before we get to the courtroom I just, I just couldn't lock into it I don't know if it was just like a rhythm thing if I revisit it now if I'd feel differently about it but I just had trouble kind of sinking my teeth in the film and then as soon as Melanda gets on screen and she starts speaking i was completely locked into the film Mm -hmm. um she's such a captivating presence apparently i mean she's been acting for a while but very rarely takes film roles she was she's just been disappointed with the kind of roles that a black woman gets offered in france um she said like it's a lot of prostitutes um Mm -hmm. a lot of low-wage workers just a lot of very stereotypical characters and she was like i don't really want to play into that i don't know how she's been making her living in the meantime but um to see her just like emerge like as this fully formed presence and complete uh actor on screen here um clearly she's been keeping up with her craft um in one form i don't know if she does stage work or what but um she's so interesting and so compelling that it's no sweat that the film is mostly composed of interrogations of her um Mm -hmm. she more than holds the center of that film and you know i'm not equipped to discuss the film in cultural terms there's a lot of the film that is in that discussion and there's a lot of really good articles that have been written about that i know there's one in film comment i can't not remember who wrote it but um i'm sure if you search film comments you know merit will come up um that dissects that in much greater detail than i could um i'm also you know not well equipped to talk about in gender terms um Alice Diop had talked about that when she went to the actual trial, that there were a lot of other mothers in the audience and just a lot of women, mothers or pregnant women um, in the audience. And clearly a lot of women responded to the story with a degree of curiosity. And um, if sympathy isn't quite the right word, then something like that, um, because especially new motherhood can be very trying and hearing, um, what's the character's name? Uh, Lawrence Coley talk here Lawrence talk about um, her experience and just like the isolation she felt in new motherhood. Um, even if the vast majority of women, thankfully don't go to the same end she did. Um, a lot of women can identify with that kind of experience. Um, but I, again, that's all my way of saying that I'm not terribly equipped to talk about it. What really, uh, on a personal level, struck me is the experience that um, kind of ties with what you were saying of uh, Rama being an audience surrogate and just generally going to films in general is the experience of seeing somebody with whom you have nothing in common, who makes decisions that you would never make, and who excuses those decisions in ways you would never excuse. Not that I'm saying that her uh, story about... Uh, sorcery is necessarily an excuse she seems to present with all the conviction in the world um but who in many ways is completely distinct from her and like it is terribly reductive that a lot of critics have said well they're both senegalese and that must be their connection that's not enough of a connection for them um there's so much that's different about the two of them but rama sees so much of herself in lawrence and that experience of seeing yourself in somebody who has nothing in common with you, who has a completely different moral compass from you and who makes decisions completely d- distinct from any you would ever make, but still recognizing a part of yourself in them is what really struck me in the film. And especially in what ends up being the only sort of interaction between the two of them when Lawrence looks over and sees Rama staring at her and she stares back is an unbelievably poignant and emotional moment where Mm -hmm. nobody's saying anything or really expressly emoting 
uh, any particular thing, but is to me, at least for what I got out of the film, the center of the experience. Okay. Uh, well, um, sharp-eared listeners have already deduced yeah. what my number one film of 2022 is. It is Claire Denis stars at noon. Um, it has been since I saw it in early October, um, at the top of the list and has not really been threatened, um, uh, seriously at any point by any movie I've seen since then. Uh, yeah, I, I like Claire Denis for her, I, again, we're getting into the territory of me, like repeating myself because I already talked about this movie a little bit, but, um, her instinctiveness and the way that she's very opposite of Spielberg, who's also great. You know, she's, I don't feel like she's manipulating, or at least I, she tricks me into thinking she's not manipulating me <laughs> because it feels like she's just taking the like she put everything in place and then it feels like she's just following what happens in a way it 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 it, it often feels like it's the characters Margaret Qualley and Jowlin's characters um whose names I don't remember uh who are more in charge of where the movie is going to go next but they're not in charge of anything because they're just like drifting about or you know bouncing randomly about um trying to uh stay alive um and out of yeah. jail and also in each other's beds um for as long as as they can uh so that it's a uh, um yeah a, a movie that felt uh, what's the word i'm looking for um it constantly surprised me but not by trying to surprise me sure um, by by just ending up wherever it it ended up uh scene to scene you know um maybe if there is a false note in the movie maybe it's john c Riley's ca cameo which <laughs> happens sure. very early on it does yeah. seem a little like hey it's john c Riley. but even when benny Safdie shows up it doesn't feel like a bit of stunt casting he's uh um i think he's very well cast in in the role if if a lim somewhat limited actor um compared to uh his screen mates um but uh yeah so it it has this feeling of just being in a similar way actually to passive fiction um though i think with less of a you know uh determined thesis behind it um it it feels like a movie you sort of just like step into and flow with for for however long what's it like 220 or something like that yeah um uh there's also you know there was a there was definitely a time when handheld camera work was overused and uh, was not always producing the best uh, the best images. Right. Um, but uh, now I'm I'm, I'm stalling because I'm trying to remember the name of or trying to look up the name of the DP. Oh, Eric Gautier. Oh yeah, of course, like Eric one of the yeah. major French cinematographers. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, when you've got someone as talented as Eric Gautier, yeah. Um, uh, that the handheld look can often be I talked about flow and it often feels like swimming but in a way that it lights upon these beautiful compositions there's a great use of a lot of natural light but then the indoors uh, especially like the dark bars there's the 
the scene where the title song plays again uh, a Claire Denis movie with a title that comes from a Tinder Sticks song although well, this time it, I think it was the other way around yeah because it's <laughs> yeah. based off a book called The Stars at Noon <laughs> yeah so Tinder Sticks <laughs> named their song after the movie but uh, um, so yeah that's a beautiful scene but uh, weirdly the one I first I keep coming back to um, is their meat not cute um, yeah. where she she comes up to him in in a fancy hotel bar um yeah i haven't said anything about what the movie's about she's uh a journalist maybe or one or a sort of, journalist maybe, maybe yeah. put, sort of was at one point yeah pitched a couple um, articles who's just kind of like uh hanging around in nicaragua um and he's um an oil exec who was there on business that may or may not be nefarious um uh and she's basically looking for a place to stay with air conditioning in a in a hot shower uh and is offering uh sex in exchange for that and so that's why that's why i call it a meat uncute it's <laughs> not cute um it's very transactional but uh she comes up to him in this bar and the bar um has along the rim of the bar like a a strip of like orange light and so the scene where they meet, meet they're both lit orange from below and it's uh it's gorgeous it's the first image that i think of when i think of the movie now yeah totally yeah um yeah i mean definitely on a pure aesthetic experience i why well, threw this on one night again i seem to watch a lot of movies when i'm tired i think i'm just tired a lot um but i put it on quite late and assumed i would just finish it the next day but i was so enraptured by just the experience of watching it that i was like sitting up and like gripping my sides to keep myself awake see it all the way through um and yeah that experience of just like constantly discovering the movie as they're seemingly as they're making i mean there's a scene where they get into a cab and it starts raining pretty quickly and it i mean i'm sure it was engineered but it feels like it just started raining while they're making the film yeah and they just captured it. there's similarly like a funeral procession procession later on the film that i sure must have been arranged but the way the camera just kind of drifts into acknowledging its presence is like oh they must have been shooting the scene suddenly there's a funeral yeah. procession um it, it the kind of the reason i ordered it where i did in my list is that it actually to me has a lot in common with the ambulance um because it kind of feels like a half documentary as they're making it mm-hmm. and um that there's such a, a center around it's centered around like the physical experience of this story um which you know is based on a novel and i think could have been executed as kind of a straightforward spy thriller kind of thing given the architecture of it um where eventually uh margaret Qualley's character is like positioned by various forces who are trying to uh, arrest Joe Alwyn's character and give him various opportunities to give him up in exchange for that. Um, but keeps resisting them. And eventually they are on the run from the law and stealing cars and like all kinds of like spy shit. But um, of course yeah. it being Claire Denis movie, this is all presented very evenly and it almost feels like a very natural evolution of them just like hanging out in Nicaragua too. So that by the time they're like, traipsing through the jungle you're like well of course they would be but then like you take a step back and you're like oh shit this really escalated um (laughs) and yeah i mean mark paul is amazing i i really like joe alwyn in the role i think his limitations kind of feed into the like dumb white westerner abroad um who's (laughs) a little in over his head and thinks he can rely on his whiteness in order to save him at any given turn um 
And I, I think in a way that I haven't really been able to isolate or put into words, I think the emotional and uh, in some ways spiritual journey of Margaret Wallach's character goes on throughout the film is really well done and quite moving. And to the point where kind of her last lines in the movie bring her to a place of vulnerability that she had never been able to reach before. You know, for so much of the movie, she's resisting the idea that she could ever be vulnerable, but something about this experience and something about uh, Jolin's character has kind of brought something out in her that's new and unforeseen and in a different register. Um, and yeah, it's, it's still a movie that I feel like I'm unpacking in a lot of ways. And I think because it's got this kind of, yeah, like I said, spy architecture based on a novel, but feels so personal. And that's another reason I kind of paired it with ambulances. They both kind of feel like the old like studio system do one for an assignment thing. I, I know this is something Claire Denis has been wanting to make for several decades, but nevertheless, it almost feels like the kind of classical auteurist model of taking a uh, kind of rote property and finding something personal to do with it. Um, and yeah, the freaking tender stick score rocks and yeah. is in competition with the Babylon score for score. I most play just like sitting around the house. Um, yeah. It's a damn shame that this got so ditched by a 24, but um I do hope more people discover it. It's not presently available on any sort of physical media. You can rent or stream it. Um, and I really I mean, hope you, you can do. rent or stream it. You can. I think oh, it's even okay. free on Hulu with a couple of ads if you so dare. Um, but I hope it gets a disc release at some point because it's uh, I, I watched on, I think, Amazon. And that wasn't the streaming quality wasn't quite doing justice to how good it looked. Um well, I so, got to see it in the theater. Uh, I know. I, I really wish I'd gone to a theater for it. It played for like a week in LA. And I, uh, but I, I went to an, like an advanced screening at the Arrow. Speaking of being tired, I am so like <laughs> kicking myself because it's, yeah, it's a two hour and 17 minute movie. And it, there were, and then they were showing uh, Trouble Every Day on 35 millimeter. And I, I just couldn't do it. Oh, yeah. But, have you ever seen Trouble Every Day? Yeah, I have seen it. Yeah. But, uh, just on TV. Like, yeah, I saw it at the New Bev a couple of years ago. That's, that's some good stuff. Uh, yeah, I wish I'd been able to stay for that, but I was I was very tired. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, um, we we did it. We wrapped up the year. Well, I guess next week, you and you and Julie will put the cherry on top. Talk. We about sure the Oscar will. Ceremony. Any but, listeners who wanted me and Julie to do their own podcast get a taste of uh, our banter without yeah. David's moderation. Purely yeah. unfiltered Scott and Julie show they, next week. They we, might not let me back on. I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Bar the doors after that. <laughs> uh, all right. So um, that's it. It feels, uh, yeah, on to 2023. 2023 officially starts now. Hell yeah. Uh, in terms of movies. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can find us at battleshipretention.com. You can find reviews of some of these. Um, I reviewed some of the stuff at TIFF. I reviewed Ambulance way back when it came out. I don't know what else. Uh, I don't remember what else I reviewed because I don't get to that many reviews anymore these days sadly um you can uh email me at davy no, no <laughs> david at battleship you can find me on twitter at davy pretension check out my other podcast the one where i met your mother where I, my wife natalie and i watch an episode of friends and an episode of how i met your mother every week um um r.i.p to rich Lou, the greatest cat in the world and uh scott where do what do you want people to know about you uh sure you can hit up me up on twitter and uh, letterboxd um yeah that's it 
All right. Well, this has been a long one, um, but not as long as Godard. So uh, we're doing all right. Um, Julie just finished listening to that. She doesn't listen to podcasts very much anymore. So she's been slowly <laughs> shipping away at it over the course of what, three months now. Yeah. yeah something like that. Yeah. We've done a whole other profile since then. Yeah. Um, which by the way, like no one has listened to, uh, I should have ah, seen it coming, too bad. but the episode is one of like our least listened to episodes in years. <laughs> ah, well, uh, oh, well, um, we'll hit them next time. We probably you know, won't. That's what we get for, uh, casting our pearls before swine <laughs> uh no i thank you listeners who are still here you're not swine um <laughs> scott thank you for filling in yeah uh at home wherever you are thank you for listening and i mean david won't get you next time but i certainly will bye bye